0: We are at a time in our world where we need to birth a new story. And there is nobody that I know who has thought through what this new story might look like more than Dr. Rabbi Mark Gaffney. We're gonna go deep on a multi-episode journey, exploring the big questions. Who are you? Where are you? What do you want? What can you do about it? And how we can all participate in a field of shared value so that we can realize that truly, we're all on the same team, team Earth, team people, team cosmos, and we must come together to address the existential threats that are all around us and also just live the most fulfilled, happy, flourishing, thriving beautiful life that we can possibly live this is our third episode with rabbi mark gaffney if you're interested in the first two make sure to check them out on youtube and anywhere podcasts are listed and look forward to more coming up soon before we get into our sponsors i want to talk to you guys about fit for service So we have already started reading and accepting applications for Fit for Service 2023. And I wanted to let you all know we got confirmations from some of our guests who are going to be there, which if you're a fan of the podcast, you'll be familiar with these names. My brother, Aaron Rodgers, is going to come and participate and speak. Peter Crone, who's been a three-time podcast guest, if you haven't listened to any of those definitely check them out. Dr. John Churchill, Dr. Kelly Brogan. There's Matthias Stefano, who we've done several podcasts with. Robert Edward Grant, who's been a two-time podcast guest. I mean, some of the most incredible individuals are going to be a part of this. And this is just the start of a very long list of people that we're bringing into this year-long program. And maybe it's going to be the interactions with those people that will change your life. Maybe it will be with one of our coaches, myself or Eric Godsey or Caitlin Howe or Vailana or Kyle Kingsbury. Or maybe it will just be with the people themselves. I mean, this is a network of some of the highest performing heart forward people that I've ever intermingled with and some of my best friends have come out of this Fit for Service program, and every single member has some of their best friends coming out of the Fit for Service program. This is an alumni network that can help get you from where you are to that path, your dharmic path of where you want to go truly, and be fit to actually walk that path, a path that you might not have even dared to dream, a path that might not even be available, but here it is, like right here in front of you as an opportunity. So. If you're interested, definitely check it out. Go to fitforservice.com. Applications are only open up through December. And also, just so you know, this is an opportunity for a free call. Like You can join Fit for Service, have three months of coaching, come to a summit, and if you don't get out of it what we expect for you to get out of it or what actually will serve your life in the best way, we'll give you all of your money back, like genuinely – There's no risk and only the upside of what this could bring into your life. So take the chance, take the leap. Salta mortale, like this is your life. This is your one chance to live the life that you really dream. And potentially, this is the next best step to help you get there. And there's not a risk for you to try. So once again, if you're interested, just go to fitforservice.com. Applications are open now. And now a word from our sponsors. And I'm gonna talk again about Alpha Brain Black Label. It took us 10 years to find a formula that was the black label version of Alpha Brain. What does black label mean? Well, that's just like the premium. That's the good shit. That's the top shelf shit. Now, I love Alpha Brain. I'm actually on Alpha Brain regular right now and I feel sharp as fuck and I love it. But that's really actually only because I ran out of Alpha Brain Black Label. The reason that I like Black Label so much is it just has a couple different key ingredients. It has some nutritional mushrooms that actually help light up the brain. It also has different forms of choline and it has mucunipurins, which really taps into the dopamine system and really keeps me highly engaged focused and rewarded for the work that i'm doing so alpha brain black label is just my absolute go-to it's also really good as a mood enhancer i just feel better when i'm taking it and when my mood is better i'm more productive and i'm able to be at my best so if you guys haven't checked it out Please do. It is the shit. Also, the packaging is super sexy, so it's a great gift if you want to give it to somebody. Go to onit.com slash aubrey for 10% off everything at onit and also Alpha Brain Black Label. Once again, on it.com slash Aubrey. And now an uninterrupted podcast with Dr. Rabbi Mark
1: Gaffney. <laughs> In Banaranda, in Bananda, in Banaranda ho 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 in Balaranda he banananda hey I Manaranda he malaranda ho in banaranda hey in banananda ho Oh, Ho. Ho. oh. good morning, Vietnam. <laughs> Robin Williams. Oh, my yep.
0: God. Yeah, Robin was great, wasn't he? He was great. I know. So I know. I miss him. Too bad somebody wasn't a little bit closer on the inside. To, right? To it was a tragic a story.
1: Now, he was, I was getting a haircut in San Anselmo with my little son, and he lives in San Anselmo, and we went to the same haircut place, and I was doing a routine I thought was a quite funny routine, you know, with my son. And he's kind of watching me, kind of as if he's taking notes. So, you know, as I walk out, I say, hey, you can have all the material. <laughs> <laughs> you know? He was sweet and yeah, just bet. lovely and just a great guy. I bet. Yeah, great guy. Yeah. Blessings to Robin Williams. Blessings,
0: Robin and Williams. Good morning, Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, here we are, brother. Here we are. Yay. Here we are. We got some cool shit to talk about we today. Some, this,
1: is, this, is, this is the big day. This is, right? This is the big day on Unique Self. Like, we've set up the frame, mm-hmm. and now we get to— we get to go, well, how does your friend uh, Chris say it? Does it grow corn? Does it grow corn? <laughs> does it grow yeah. corn. Yay. So where should we start with? I mean, I'll tell you a story. Sure. So I'm, there's two versions to the story. There's two parts to it, but we'll give you both of them really quickly. So I am at a, a very famous school. I'm um, in America, Exeter Academy. And I'm talking to this fantastic group of just young people about is there anything in the world that actually obligates you for which you're actually responsible, meaning not I want to do it, not it's a nice thing to do. You got to do that, right? It's got, it's got to be done, right? There's a kind of demand by Cosmos and it's, does Cosmos ever demand something from us? Does it actually say, Hey, I need you to do this and this is your student. You got to do it. Mm -hmm. And their assumption was no because they were deeply educated in that kind of postmodern context that we talked about earlier and they they're validated by the entire postmodern structure. And we looked at Yuval Harari as a kind of parrot of postmodernity, And we argued about whether he was a good guy or a bad guy, mm-hmm. <laughs> And I so said, Yuval, we're, we're working that one, brother, <laughs> right? I'm standing for you. Aubrey's a little suspicious, suspicious. <laughs> a little suspicious, right? And I shared with them a story. You know, with you know, this is with uh, you know, five hundred you know young men and women, and I shared it not only with them, but this same scenario with you know a couple of dozen leading centers of education, high school and college over a period of years, and the image or the story or the the hypothetical is as follows: You're on a plane, the plane crashes or a ship shipwrecks, deserted island. It's you and Mother Teresa are the only survivors, and, and the reason I use Mother Teresa because I had when, when I started, started offering this example. I just read like the second of her, her kind of biographies and she was tough. I mean, she was like, you think mother Teresa Mm -hmm. was a very sweet lady holding a baby from Calcutta. She did great, gorgeous things in the world, lived a tragic life, actually never heard God talking. I mean, she could never find the divine. She actually acted despite that in a very beautiful way. It was really gorgeous. And she was trying to create an order out of the Vatican which is a a profoundly beautiful and profoundly corrupt with with genuine decadence, you know, institution, which is not easy. So she's a hard woman and her biographers describe her as such.
0: So I I, heard heard that, and this is a total tangent, but I heard that sometimes she would just grab a baby from an orphanage or something like that, go knock on a door and it was Mother Teresa. So you answered the door and then just hand the baby. Right. And they'd be like, and she'd be like, yep. yours now yeah it's yours (laughs) you know yeah yeah and so like that was like that's a beautiful story tekufot
1: right there yeah totally that's tekufot right tekufot as in right the radical audacity that it comes from the humility of knowing that all moves through you tekufot that great lineage word right right t-e-k-u-f-o-t tekufot right so and, and that was her audacity and she was also tough and hard so here you are with mother Teresa. you're on an island and it turns out, and, you know, apologize for all your Mother Trace fans. We're total Mother Trace fans, but it turns out she's impossible. It's driving you out of your mind. You know, hypothetically, you're never going to be rescued. So it's never, right? This is kind of like, uh, Dostoevsky, you know, when Raskolnikov kills the old woman in the famous Dostoevsky novel, right? The meta theoretic says he'll never be caught. Can he get away with murdering the old woman, right? Even though He'll never be caught. Has he actually violated something? That's the question Dusty mm-hmm. was asking. So, so, I asked him a version of the same question. So, you're there with Mother Teresa. You've been there for 10 years. You feel like if you hear her talk one more time, she's going to fucking kill you, right? <laughs> like, you, you're you just dying, right? She reminds you of your mother. It's, it's, it's nails, right? I apologize. <laughs> ah, right, right. You can't even do it, right? And you're never going to be rescued. And she has a diving accident. Why she's diving, I don't know. I made that up along the way someplace, you know, maybe from the shipwreck, diving gear was still there. You happen to be a doctor. Why you're a doctor, that's also made up in the story. But basically, we create this trolley car problem. You know, you, you fix her hands, right? She both broke, both hands diving. They're, they're now out in splints in front of her and she can't feed herself. What do you do? Do you have an obligation to feed her? Now, the answer to that question is yes. It's actually not a hard question. But five sixths, without hyperbole, without exaggeration, of the leading edge, you know, young men and women, high school and college, from education around the world, said, you cannot say that you're obligated to feed her. You can't. That's like, wow, right? And the other six pretty much were from fundamentalist world, and they said, yes, you do, because God commanded it. Mm -hmm. Which is, you know, that's a step ahead, right? But, but still, or a step behind or, 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 but it's also got a regressive dimension to it. But But to to think that five, six of the people said you can't, it's a good thing to do. mm And it might be a nice thing. You probably should maybe. Yeah. But you can't really say should with a capital S and you can't say that you have to do this because, because there is no intrinsic sense of value right? There's no intrinsic thing, which is not. And that's the, where Harari's parroting postmodernism says all value is fiction, social construct, figment of our imagination. Now that's tragic. And, you know, the second part of the story is I then met with, you know, a key figure, you know, um, whose name I won't mention at Harvard Divinity School who was teaching there. And I went over with her the same question. And she, of course, agreed with the students it'd be, of course, you know, you know, of course we should take care of that woman, but, but not really should, should with a, a lowercase s. You can't formulate it. And I discussed this with, you know, leading edge, serious thinkers, theologians, you know, pretty much universal agreement. Agreement. You can't formulate that as an absolute obligation. It can be utilitarian. You create a better society that way because what kind of society would would it be? But that falls down because of course you're never going to be rescued. So it doesn't impact society. Mm -hmm. That's why I isolated that way. I wanted to take it out of that utilitarian ethic. No, no, you're never going to be rescued. This is not going to affect society in any way whatsoever. So in that isolated place, do you have the obligation or not? The answer is, of course, you do. And it's the breakdown of value, which suggests that you don't. But here's where unique self comes in. Here's where it gets crazy exciting. And we were able to actually formulate, and it took us 20 years to formulate a clean, clear sense of what am I obligated to do? And but before we formulate it, I just want to say in Hebrew, it's very beautiful. The word obligation and the word love are the same word. Mm. So meaning obligation means the love intelligence moving in me demands a certain kind of expression of loving that moves in me as me and through me that doesn't move through anyone else but me. And remember, you know, and this is a good place to maybe review it for a second for people. Remember our our 70 seconds, then we did another 13 seconds in our last dialogue, and I had seven seconds to spare, which is what's the formula of unique self? So, unique self is who are you? You're an irreducibly unique expression of the love intelligence and love beauty and love desire. Now we do it slowly of all that is, that lives in you, as you and through you, that ever was, is, or will be ever again other than through you. And as such, you have a unique perspective, you have a unique capacity. You have a unique quality of intimacy that come together to foster your unique gift that you need to give to your unique circle of intimacy and influence, right? It fosters your unique gift, which addresses a unique need in your unique circle of intimacy and influence. And that is your unique responsibility. That's your unique obligation.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Whoa. So now all of a sudden, right, this is going to grow some corn. Yep. Okay, let's grow some corn here now. Yep. So. What are you obligated to do? But obligation is not imposed by some caricatured God, right? Or some caricatured government, right? The God you don't believe in doesn't exist. Not that crazy God that you don't believe in. That God God doesn't exist. This is the love intelligence of cosmos that moves through you, that makes this demand and radical love. Just like when you're madly in love, you're madly in love with Lady Vi, right? Does that make, does that, you are, right? I know. I'm staying at your house this week, and I see it, right, right, in and out every day, right, behind the scenes, right? It's beautiful. Does that make a demand on you? Of course it does. Yeah, it does. Of course it does. Is it like, no, it's an option? No, actually, it's the most intense and real demand. So let's formulate, really, for the first time in a post-postmodern moment, and it's not by accident that we're formulating this here on a podcast and not at Harvard Divinity School, because Harvard Divinity School has become a kind of, and that whole Institutional framework of the academy has become kind of a hothouse of mediocrity. And it keeps repeating the same old postmodern, you know, destructions of value because they don't want to go to regressive value, right? Fundamentalist value, but we actually haven't engaged after all the deconstruction of postmodernity in the reconstructive project. So the reconstructive project begins right here, right now, you know, on this podcast. So here we go. So here's how obligation works, and it's very beautiful. One, you see a need, right? So A, there's a need, A. B, you discern the need. You see the need. Three, it's a real need. It's a genuine, authentic, it's a real need. You know, four, you have the capacity to meet that need. Five, you're the only person in the entire world that at this moment in time has that capacity in the unique way that's yours to do to meet that need. So you have a unique capacity to meet that need that no one else alive in reality at this time has. Now, that's kind of wildly exciting because what this story does for us is, right, it's why it's so beautiful. You're on this island. You're the only person there. So you've got an obvious expression of number 5. You're the only one who can possibly do this. But if you Actually, have a realization of unique self. If you actually get that you're not defined by your comparison to another person, that you're not actually in an Instagram game, that you're not actually trying to accumulate likes against someone else, meaning you're not in a rivalrous conflict governed by win lose metrics, which is a generator function of existential risk. You're actually in your unique self. Then you understand that actually every single moment of every single day, you have a unique gift to give, and a unique life to live right? That actually every single moment of every single day, the love intelligence and love beauty and love desire of all that is moves in you as you and through you and is whispering in your ear and saying, hey, I need you. There's something I need you to do that I can't get done without you. L'chisha, the whisper. Right? It's a lisha, the lineage says. It's a whisper. It's called l'chisha
0: de oraita, right? The whisperings of the light. So let's play. Wow. Let's play a little bit. Let's play a little bit. All right. So I'm going to give, I'm going to give example okay, of something here we go. that's very similar to the Mother Teresa example, but actually happened to me. Okay. Here we go. Downtown. Downtown. And I'm on my way to this club called Summit. I used to go there every once in a while, probably once a month or so. We'd get a little table at the rooftop and we'd dance. we have some fun. I'm on my way there. And as there's a, there's a street that turns, you know, onto the main street, fifth street where I was going. And there was somebody crossing the street. This truck takes the turn you know, pretty fast without looking and hits the guy, not too hard, but hit him enough that he kind of whiplashed and then cracked his head on the pavement. Wow. And I'm the closest guy to that guy. Right. So I spring into action. I pull my shirt off. And I wrap it around his head because his head was bleeding, and I'm, you know, shouting out directions for somebody else because I'm cradling, cradling his head, yeah, and ra- have my shirt yeah. wrapped around it, and kind of yeah. have my hand on my hand on his chest, like it's gonna yeah. be all right, brother. But you know, we got the ambulance coming. I'm doing, yeah. just doing what I can. I'm not a fucking medic, but I figured right. that was the best thing to do. Maybe stop some of the bleeding. Maybe keep his head from right. rolling around on the pavement. Maybe yeah. comfort him. That was mine in that time. That That was was my obligation to do that. That was your obligation in that
1: time. Meaning it wasn't an option. Yep. And even though you couldn't be criminally prosecuted, and this is what's interesting. Yep. The law doesn't formulate that obligation. Yep. Meaning had you, someone call an ambulance, or even had you walked on, the law, right, actually avoids obligation. Mm -hmm. And actually, in that moment in time, your unique perspective your unique quality of intimacy, your unique capacity was at play. And that's a gorgeous example because like the Mother Teresa example, it accomplishes the same thing. Yeah. Right? You actually realize the experience of uniqueness. So think about this. It gets completely crazy and beautiful now in the most elegant way. So in terms of ourselves that we talked about in part one of the dialogue, so if you're true self, you don't have the experience of being personally addressed by reality with the reality of making a demand on you you can't formulate responsibility and an obligation it's just this generic sense of love but love doesn't move uniquely through you the evolutionary impulse of love evolutionary love eros doesn't move through you so you're left in this space where you're never personally addressed there's never a demand right ever on you and that's actually a not only a pathetic life but a life which is radically filled with depression and breakdown because depression is replaceability, right? Right. And if I'm replaceable, if I'm not needed, I'm depressed. And here's the second thing. And then back to you, brother, separate self. So if you're a separate self, that's what we just say. You're a separate self. You can't formulate obligation. That's why if you were a separate self, there's no way to formulate an obligation for you to stop as you did so beautifully, find that man, rip your shirt off, put his, you know, head in your arms, hold him, and, and I know you, brother, I'm sure you were radically present, so a kind of fullness of presence. You stepped into the inside of the reality. These are faces of Eros, a dialogue we, we almost haven't. We did a beginning dialogue on, but Eros means I'm on the inside. I'm fully present. I'm part of the whole. So in that moment, there you are, part of the whole. You are the expression of the whole itself in that moment. It's all moving through you. You get very calm because the hole's moving through you, yep. right? Your interiority is fully present with the guy. He can feel you, and God has now acted through you. Mm-hmm. It's not that God wasn't there. God was there having an Aubrey experience, but separate self can't formulate that. Yep. You have no obligation. You're not called, and true self can't formulate it, which is why a society built on separate self is bound to collapse because it's an open, a, a society built, particularly an open society, where there's no top-down imposition, like a closed society, will collapse, and in India, right, or a, a kind of eastern society whose ethos is rooted in true self, will have an ashram in the middle of a neighborhood of abject poverty, and it'll be deep in its own meditation, and won't engage what's all around it, because mm-hmm. it's true self.
0: hmm
1: So I'm not not engaging. I don't need to engage. There's no demand by cosmos that I engage. It's only unique self that can formulate the love demand of cosmos, but it's demand that's of enormous joy. It's the demand that Lady Vi's presence makes an Aubrey.
0: Yeah. The love intelligence uniquely love desire and love beauty awaken alive in you. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's a choice for those in the ashram to take the Bodhisattva path or not. In in a kind of a way. It's like either way, either stay here and meditate or enter into the fray. Either I'll be out an of Air your, heart, as they call it, meaning mm-hmm. I'll I won't enter the
1: fray, or I'll be a bodhisattva, but my my gig. Right. My gig. And, right. and we sh- just we, we we have to get to the bodhisattva right. And a genuine unique self experience means that I'm obligated to be a bodhisattva. And that word bodhisattva, right, right, meaning meaning bodhisattva, meaning I'm gonna actually, I'm gonna actually not just experience my own enlightenment as true self but I'm going to go and bring everyone with me right, on the path to their fullest realization. That is in unique self. That is the, there's a unique, you know, actually in the unique self book in chapter four, there's a section called the unique bodhisattva vow.
0: So you like, just you just blew like, it out of the it's water. It's like Snoop Dogg says. It ain't no fun if the homies don't have none. Snoop Dogg it is, man. Well, Snoop Dogg the Bodhisattva. Snoop, Snoop Dogg the Bodhisattva. <laughs> Do we got it? We got it.
1: Well, that's good. Snoop Dogg's Bodhisattva.
0: Right? Snoop Dogg yeah, Dogg at least loses. when he's passing, passing joints and gin, and gin and juice. <laughs> oh, my uh, God. Snoop Dogg. Yes. So the other, the other thing I was just going to contrast with is similar situation. I'm actually driving in a car and I'm going down. One side, it's a much bigger road. It's uh, the road Cesar Chavez going down one side, going home um, late at night. And there's this guy who tries to make a run across just without any lights, run across both sides. He runs across my side, plenty of room across my side, but he didn't see there was another car coming on the other side. Faster car. And he's kind of lumbering. He thought he thought he could make it, couldn't make it. The other car slams on the brakes, not enough time. And the guy like hits the car. And then goes up over the car, which is good. He didn't get like pinned underneath it. It kind of took his feet out. Um, But it was a, you know, it was a, it was a big hit. And uh, (laughs) so I'm driving, I pull over Mm. and I look back and I see four cars pulled over. I see somebody on the phone, you know, I'm listening to what's going on. There was people with him. There was people calling. And then I was like, okay, like I can keep driving. They got this. They got this. I am not uniquely needed. There's right, nothing actually that I can add. I'm not a fucking medic. I'm not a doctor. Right. I don't have a unique set of skills that actually makes me better and more equipped to handle this than anybody else. The ambulance has already been called, and actually, we saw the ambulances racing on by us on the way home. You know, and it's and it's like, okay, that's the, that was the difference. It was like I was not. While well, I could, I could, I, I would have helped if I was on the other side of the road. I was first there, but because there was it was just a slightly different situation in which I could make the assessment like, no, actually this isn't mine. And I can, and I can keep going. It's gorgeous. And there's a key word you just said, brother, I could make the assessment. Yeah. That's the phrase,
1: right? Meaning I actually have the capacity to discern, you know, in the true self world, there's what they call an inquiry question. And the inquiry question is who am I? Right in unique self enlightenment, if you will. But when I say unique self enlightenment, I mean unique self enlightenment, not as the practice of the elite, but what we call the democratization of enlightenment, right? And unique self allows for the democratization of enlightenment. It actually demands it because you can't just have an elite that have realized their true self, meaning their, their identity with all that is actually for unique self enlightenment, you need every unique self to be realized, to be self-organizing or self-actualizing based on the allure or the call of their uniqueness. Because my uniqueness is my unique set of allurements. That's actually what it is. So for Ramana Maharshi, the question is, who am I? And when I'm supposed to realize, who am I? I mean, I'm the whole thing, right? I'm one with consciousness. But then that's the end of the story. And Unique Self-Enlightenment, it's, who am I? You're a unique self. Right? And if you really ask the question well, you'll get, who am I? Your unique self. Your only irreducibly unique expression of the love, intelligence, and the love, beauty of all that is, that mm. lives in you, as you, and through you, that never will be, is, ever again, other than through you, and S. right?
0: You'll get the whole thing. I see now how, right? you, how you really kind of cheated a little bit when you said you could it's get It was a little this. hustling. It was you, a little You hustling. hustled me
1: yesterday. It was a hustle. It was a hustle. When I, when I, when I challenged, you, when I challenged, you, when I challenged you to
0: say something in less than it was 90 seconds, you have it rehearsed.
1: I was not rehearsed. You knew your timing. I, I, I wasn't rehearsed, but I did know at the timing. It was a hustle. Right and which is why I regretted not making a bet. I'm telling you, right? That was that was like, well, what the fuck was I doing? I knew uh-huh. I could do it. Why didn't I make a bet? Complete lost opportunity.
0: You did. You hustled I know. me.
1: Lost opportunity. Uh-huh. Right. So, so it's... I think you tried to hustle me in ping pong too, but actually there was just too no, no, much no. of a gap. Uh, you know, to to go to the to go to the ping pong gap between us in the middle of a dialogue where we're trying to change culture is just a cruel thing to do. So I'm just saying we're not going to go there right okay, now. Okay, okay. Okay. Leave it. Okay. But yeah, but I got a couple good slams in there. <laughs> you did. I did. I did a couple. Of us. Did. I did. Some, you did. That's it, what I was
0: saying. There was a little bit of hustle Yeah. There was. was, was uh, You're like, I don't know if I can really do this. bam. Well, that was. was but well, then I returned it, and then you were like, uh oh, oh, that was a
1: problem. But we're just we're just at the beginning of the ping pong conversation. Oh, yeah. Okay. We're Let's at the beginning. Okay. So it. here we go. So. As unique self, and it's very beautiful. The question is: who am I? One, your unique self. And then it elicits a second question. And this is the real inquiry question. What does reality need from me in this moment? That's the unique self-inquiry. And that inquiry by itself, and the reason we can joke about ping pong is that's why, because reality doesn't need me to win a ping pong game. Mm -hmm. That's what we can be in joy about. We can play, right? That's the gorgeousness of play. We get to step into play. And then we get into the, the incredibly seriousness of life, which has joy. It's actually even a deeper play. And the deeper play is the deeper joy is the joy of being unique self and knowing that all of reality is turning to me in this moment. I'm literally center stage and reality needs my service. And that's a lineage phrase, 16th century, Ibn Gavoah, mm. Reality needs your service. And I just want to say, I mean, holy brother, right? That does so much more than Prozac, mm. right? And as the actual experience, reality needs Christian. Reality needs Ryan, our friends with us in the studio today. And I'm actually needed by reality and that no one that ever was, is, or will be or who's alive at this moment that
0: right, can address that need, other than me, that's joy. And, well, yes, and all that's absolutely true. And it can also be a, a source of deep challenge because I've experienced this challenge as well. When you recognize that you have unique gifts, there are things that only I can offer, and that anytime is you're there an ever artist, a joy without deep challenge. Ah, uh, that's right? true. That's true. Right. But let me just eliminate. Let me yeah, just go, eliminate go. the challenge for yeah, people. Please. Is when you recognize that you have, you are a unique self, and you do have unique gifts. At any given moment, there's something uniquely I could do that would be of unique service to the world. I could reach an audience. I craft a post. I make a poem. I, I write a, you know, I write another newsletter. I make another connection, or even I offer my body work, which is a radically unique experience that I was trained, you know, one of one, and from the lineage from Porangi. There's so many things that I could do that there's almost an, an near infinite amount of things that I could do in a finite amount of time and energy. And so actually the discernment gets sometimes difficult. So so now I guess this is, this this is a great inquiry, right? So how do I make that discernment? Mm
1: -hmm. Right. In other words, it's never ending. Right. So one, it is never ending, right? (laughs) You know what I mean? Another, Yeah. yeah. Yeah it's like it's actually and there's an insane joy in that that comes with meeting that challenge so so it is never ending and and reality demands mad love of my beloved and all my beloveds and mad love of myself and and we can actually move into love here a little bit but part, part of loving myself is the ability to nourish myself mm-hmm. the ability to nurture myself and i nurture myself through play i nurture myself through through making love and I nurture myself through, through playing ping pong with Mark, right? Well, when I destroy him, and I feel really good about winning that (laughs) game with my left hand. Right. (laughs) Right. Right. It's a lot of nurturance going on there. Right. But it's, it's, there's an enormous delight and we don't know how to do self love. Right. So because we don't know how to do self love, we don't actually get that if you're not in mad devotion to yourself, you can't be in mad devotion to anyone else because not only is everybody else the unique self, I'm a unique self. Yeah. And, and we kind of move into the love thing here. Love actually is not an emotion. Love at its core is a perception, which is a huge, beautiful idea. And we can talk about love here a little bit, but, but just for now, in terms of what you're talking about, so love's not an emotion, right? That actually destroys love because the emotion is energy in motion and then it's gone. Right? You get hit by Cupid's arrow, and then it hits the secretary. It's gone. You can't control that arrow. It's an emotion happening to you, which is why all of love language is passive. I fell in love, and right? I fell in love, right? I was love-struck, right? And so love's always happening to me. It's always Cupid's arrow that happens to get fired at me, happens to hit me, but then when the, the, the holy poison, the arrow wears off, I'm out of the game, so that's a great tragedy of how we understand love, and we can talk about it in more depth. But love at its core is not an emotion; love is a perception. It's a stunning realization, and it's
0: not just a perception; it's a unique self-perception. Yeah. So, isn't isn't that type of love, you know? It's exciting. That well, of course, of yeah. course, that type of that the type of cupidness love. What's interesting is. I believe, from my studies of antiquities, that's actually what they would have called eros. Back in back in the Hellenistic and and kind of Roman times, right? Yeah, eros is eros. It, but you've re, you've like re you've reclaimed that word in right. a different way. Eros, right? Eros is a big
1: word, right? Eros is a big word. That's a big that's whoa a big con. But, but but eros is the experience of reality. It's the experience of radical aliveness in reality. It's reality seeking, desiring contact and desiring the creation of greater wholeness. Now, one of the methodologies of Eros is to see, to perceive, right? So so Eros, awaken the human being, the way I make contact, right? Because Eros is the experience. We have an Eros equation in the interior sciences that we've developed in this new story of value in cosmorotic humanism. And the equation is Eros equals radical aliveness, desiring ever deeper contact, generating ever greater wholes and wholeness. That's an Eros equation. And of course, these last two conversations we've been talking about this new story of value in cosmoerotic humanism. So in this new story of value, Eros is at the core, erotic humanism. We live mm-hmm. in a world that is, is lined with Eros. Eros lives in us, as us, and through us. So as Eros goes from matter right, to life, the biological world, into the human mind, into the depth of the self-reflective human, and then awakens as a human being, In the human being, the desire for contact isn't only physical. We want to touch each other. We want to touch each other physically. We want to touch each other emotionally. We want to Mm -hmm. touch each other existentially. We want to touch each other spiritually. We want to touch each other psychologically. So that's what love is. Love is the perception, the contact I make by seeing you. So love is a unique self-perception, meaning I see your operiness, Mm -hmm. right? That's what it means, right? So for me to love Aubrey is, is I I see and feel his Aubrey-ness and I'm delighted by Aubrey-ness. gives me joy. So that's, that's a big deal. Love's unique. Now it says, love your neighbor, love your friend, sacred text, as yourself. You have to love yourself. So self-love is also a unique Mm self-perception. It's a self-perception of my unique self. And If I would want you, Ab, to be able to play and to be nurtured and to be in celebration, because I see your unique self and I see that it's worthy in it, and it deserves the experience of radical joy and of giving your gift and and writing your poem and singing your song and and being in the spaciousness, right, of reality and the self-evident goodness, right, for its own sake. We call that in the lineage Lishma. I do things for their own sake, for its own sake. Then if I only do that for you, I don't do it for myself. And I'm actually slapping the goddess in the face,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? Because because love your your friend, sacred text, kamocha, the way you love yourself, and just like you love your beloved as unique self perception, I love auburness. If I don't love markness, ultimately I can't love auburness.
0: Yeah, it's like wow. And and look, the way out for me is is to actually listen to my own unique allurement and actually start to trust that what I want to do is actually so much closer to what I'm obligated to do. If I actually clarify what I want to do, right? Because in this thing, we're talking about your, your ability to give your unique gift and meet a unique need is your unique obligation. But then when you have an infinite or near infinite set of potential obligations, because you have unique gifts that offer a range wait, of a range of unique gifts, range of right? unique gifts. And you have to
1: decide in every minute which
0: one to do. Yeah. And really it's some part, it can be strategy and you can figure it out. But actually the, the part that's, that I've found personally is, it's. I'm actually drawn towards it. I want to do it. And when I want to do it, it happens so much more powerfully, magically, Yeech. beautifully. I and to that. learn to trust my own desire again and say, actually, my desire is truly pointing me in the right way. And to know when there may be a desire that's like, oh, okay, this is another, this is another part of me. This is a separate self-desire. Got it. But And that's Berur. And that's another big topic. It's a clarification of desire. But to learn to trust my own desire has been the way out of this riddle. It's gorgeous, right? Gorgeous. Cause I mean, that's like
1: bases loaded, bottom of the ninth, right? Because who are you? We said yesterday, you are desire, right? In other words. And so let's go back. Let's rewind. Let's rewind to that hustle from yesterday. Right. But just mm-hmm. to kind of, it's very beautiful to see it. Kind of, we can even see it on the screen, right? Who are you? You're an irreducible, unique expression. Of the love intelligence, the love beauty, and the love desire of all that is that lives in you, as you, and through you, right? That has unique perspective, unique quality of intimacy that foster your unique gift, that allow you to address a unique need in your unique circle of intimacy and influence. So what you just did is very beautifully, is you picked up and amplified one part of the equation that, of course, we hadn't talked about, which is: I'm a unique expression. You're an Aubrey's in a unique expression of love desire. Now, another word for desire is allurement. And so that's the equation. So Aubrey's is a unique set of allurements. So it's not that obligation is imposed from without. That is to say some, from something which violates your essence. When, we, when you hear the word obligation, do you go like, yes? No, you go like, oh, right? And the word obligation, it's a, it's a bad word. And the original Hebrew word, chova, which we said earlier, plays with the word love. It's the same root as the word love. It's a much better word, mm. right? In other words, in other words, what tells me that I'm obligated or I'm, I'm being demanded by love is my, what you just described gorgeously, my allurement. I want to do that. I'm allured to do that. And my unique self is my unique set of allurements. And it's cosmic allurement moves uniquely through me. And when we say reality is eros, we talked about this maybe in our first dialogue, right? right? Eros runs through all of reality right? Alluring together subatomic particles to form atoms and atoms to form molecules and molecules to form macromolecules and macromolecules form, you know, primary cells and then multicellular, and then organisms and neural net, and neural cord and all the way up the evolutionary chain. So allurements driving the whole thing. You and I are talking to each other because we were allured to have a conversation,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? So to know, to listen and know Aubrey's unique set of allurements and you invoked a critical lineage word, bearer, you have to clarify, is this what I'm allured to do? Am I covering up some early issue? Attachment theory? Do I've got a, a trauma that I'm trying to deal with? Is it pseudo-eros or pseudo-allurement?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Or am I actually allured? So to listen to the murmurings of your own allurement is what it means to be enlightened. Yep. But every human being has that capacity so we can talk about the democratization of enlightenment. And now again, we're growing corn here.
0: Yeah. We're and, growing and corn. Another another interesting aspect that, yeah. I, that I've meditated on is people are always looking to equate your purity with this lack of desire Mm. right like as if like if you want to do it like if you really want to be president and you're president it's like oh well no that you're fucked up that's just your ego this is an ego like an ego game but actually all of these things can go hand in hand and you can through Baruch clarify like where there's a little part like yeah my ego wants to have this position and hold that title, and but also I'm drawn to this. I'm drawn to this by the unique need of the cosmos and the unique ability for me to give this gift. And it's okay to want to do the right thing and to want to do the thing and actually to take great pleasure in doing right. it. And yeah. you can still be trustable. Yeah. And yeah. actually, you're only trustable when you acknowledge that. Yeah. 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 You know? yeah no, because no. there's this old motto of like the only worthy leader is the farmer who doesn't want to be the leader. Or like. You know, George Washington's like, no, 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 I don't want to do. Oh okay, oh, okay, if I have to, you know, not like, yeah, let's go fucking kill some redcoats. Like, I'm fucking into this. Let's let's lead the revolution. Like, you'd be like, can we trust him? Right. You know, It's right. this very strange thing where if you actually enjoy what you're called to do and really take pleasure in it, people get skeptical of you. Right. Right.
1: Right. I'm I'm gonna bracket the kill some redcoats thing, so we'll we'll get back to that. Right. Right. But but, but I got the I got the I mean I mean yep. you're and you're batting a thousand here. Cause, cause, because what are you saying? So let's just, let's just pick this up and find it. What we're saying is, is that first off, desire's at the center. And it's my desires and clarifying my desires. You, you can't talk about unique self. You can't formulate obligation without desire. Without knowing my desire and clarifying my desire, there's no move. Yep. Right? And, and the ability to trust my own knowing of my own desire is huge. And actually, in the end, the only person you can trust is yourself. Mm -hmm. In other words, you can trust other people to give you advice, to reflect yourself back to you. You can do a 360 and get important information about yourself. But in the end, the only person who can actually own your enlightenment is yourself. It's unique self-enlightenment, which is why unique self-theory intentionally kills the guru, not the teacher, not the guide not the coach, right? There's lots of important roles in the world, but the guru who says, I'm telling you what you should be doing. The guru has to be killed on the path. You meet the guru on the path, kill them with unique self enlightenment. Because if enlightenment means I've got more true self-realization, Aubrey's got more true self than Mark or Mark has than Aubrey. Well, I'm your guru. You're my guru, right? So I can, I'll tell you the way, but I can't have more of your unique self than you. Yeah. By definition, Yeah, there's no way Mark can have more of Aubrey's unique self than Aubrey. Can't be, not possible. so therefore, Aubrey has, and this is the idea of autonomy. As an ultimate, he's he's part of the unique self symphony, he's listening to the music, but his autonomy is that he's trustable in discerning what his unique self-responsibility is. That's enormous joy in that. And here's the thing, pleasure. We've taken pleasure out of the game. We've taken desire out of the game. We've made desire an enemy. So if you're filled with desire to do that, uh, that must be problematic. You're a George Washington example when it's actually precisely the opposite. The only thing you should be doing Mm -hmm. is that which you're filled with overflowing, pulsating, throbbing, tumescent desire to do. If you're not filled with that, don't do it. Mm -hmm. Now, clarify your desire. Make sure it's not a surface desire. Make sure it's not pseudo eros. Make sure it's it's eros. It's the eros of unique self because unique self is the ultimate eros. Mm And that's a big sense. Unique self is the ultimate Eros. When you're in your unique self, you're in Eros. Unique self is a conduit for Eros. Unique self is not, remember we said uniqueness is not separateness, which is the currency of alienation. Unique self is the currency of connection. What does it connect you to? And the best image is if you have a cord, the end of the cord, you have a plug. So the cord is the sameness that we all participate in. Everyone's got the same cord. At the plug, the plug's absolutely unique. So the plug is your unique self. The plug plugs into the portal of cosmos and literally animates you with eros. Mm-hmm. So if you're not in your unique self, means you're not plugged in, right? You're actually out of eros. When you're out of eros, you're not trustable.
0: Yeah, because then, and and I definitely want to talk about this. Then it leads you down this path of pseudo eros because your desire mm-hmm. turns into the shadow, and then you get all of this self-righteous behavior. I just recently, and this is going to be an obscure reference unless people are really familiar with Game of Thrones, but you might remember it. There's a scene with uh, the Septa Unella, who is this kind of very harsh, and she was uh, she was in charge of like keeping the prisons for Lady Marjorie and Cersei yeah. and Loras, and she would just you know throw the food on the ground and tell them to tell them to repent and like read scripture at them and very like stern. Finally, Cersei turns the tables on her. And tries to get her to admit that she wasn't doing this out of some sense of piety, that she liked it. Right. She liked it. She thinks that she's the most pious nun right. in this new you know, reclamation of the faith and the faith militant. And she's like, no, you fucking liked it. And I know you liked it because she's a villain, Cersei. Right. And Cersei knows the pleasure of being a villain. Right. She's not split off from it. She's right. just chosen a very dark path. Right. But she's actually aware that she desires the hurtful, hateful things that she's doing. And then so she can see the shadow of the scepter. She septa. can see the pleasure. She can see the pleasure and see the villainy in that. In that, And then in a way, obviously, Cersei has some deep fucking issues that make her go down the dark path. But at least she's aware that she's doing it because it feels good. And so it's like somehow her darkness is in the light and she's still choosing it. That's okay. a whole different pathology. But she's able to recognize the darkness that's in the shadow. That's in another person.
1: This is is a big fucking deal, right? We brought pleasure to the table, right? And which is, you know, we got to do a whole conversation on pleasure. It's, it's, but but let's just sit back and spend a word on it. Your unique self is crazy pleasurable because, and let's just, we'll follow it carefully because your unique self is your Eros. Eros is the experience of radical aliveness, desiring ever deeper contact and ever greater wholeness. That experience is pleasurable. In other words, Pain is when things fragment inappropriately, they dissociate, they're ripped apart. The the interior experience of eros is pleasure, right? So the movement of eros is the movement of pleasure. That's why healing is the movement to wholeness, which is the movement of eros, right? Mm -hmm. So all movements of eros are healing in that they're wholing and they're pleasurable, right? Pain, fragmentation, shit's ripped apart. So if your unique self is the embodiment of your eros, that means that you get enormous pleasure from being in your unique self, even when you're in fucking pain, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so if I'm moving between manuscripts and trying to write the great library and I can, my head is splitting open and I barely have, you know, I can barely kind of keep my head up, but I've got like three more hours to work and it's midnight and I'm like, fuck me, why am I doing this? But there's no one in the world that's making me do it. No one, there's no one, no one would say anything if I stopped doing it at that moment, but I am in, and I'm actually in pain at that moment. I'm filled with pleasure. <laughs> right? mm-hmm. That's because mm-hmm. I'm doing the right thing and I'm glad I'm doing this. And although I'm going to, you know, complain and Christina's going to say to me, like, you chose to do that. Why are you complaining? That's a good point. Right. Fair. Okay. You win that one. Right. But I'm, I'm in pleasure on because I'm in the pleasure of my unique self. Mm-hmm. Right. And people are suspicious of people who are in their pleasure when they're not. Yeah. So pleasure is somehow demonized when pleasure actually this is a huge sentence. Pleasure is the source of all ethics. We think pleasure is the opposite of ethics. Actually, we've made this split in Western culture between hedon, hedonism, and daemon. You invoke daemon, I think it was mm-hmm. yesterday. Daemon's a part of the image of unique self. I'm being called. Actually, hedon and daemon are completely one with each other. The deeper I'm in my daemon, the more pleasure I have. And so pleasure actually is a reliable, trustable guide to ethics. Now you have to clarify what's your pleasure. So every pleasure in a different conversation, different book in the great library is six levels of pleasure and 10 voices of pleasure and 23 principles of pleasures. We're not doing that now, but for minimally we can say is that every pleasure has a counterfeit, All right? You got to watch, are you in the pleasure and the counterfeit? So let's say you got the pleasure of standing for a, a cause. That's a pleasure. It's different than the pleasure of ice cream, right? That's, that's what we call level three pleasure. Pleasure of standing for a cause. Counterfeit, pseudo cause, bad cause. You're wrapping yourself in a, you know, a, a, a suicide bomb and you're going to blow up a bus because you're standing for the cause of a particular form of tragic jihad, mm-hmm. right? So so when it's, every pleasure has a counterfeit and you have to clarify and discern between right? What, what's the actual pleasure? What's not the pleasure? That's, that's a big deal, not our conversation. But for now, we can at least say that literally the source of all ethics is pleasure. If you actually follow your pleasure, your authentic pleasure, you will be the most ethical person you can possibly imagine. And that's, that's shocking. And here's the thing. Evolution evolves because it feels good. And I want to get that to, I'm not saying that that's not a clever sentence, right? It's not a, a slogan sentence. That is 20 years of research. And I want to summarize it a few words. Evolution evolves because it feels good, right? There's what one scientist called, right? A kind of quantum hedonism, right? right? Kathy Kaufman's phrase, right? A kind of quantum hedonism that lives all the way down, right? Evolu- it's such a great realization, right? Evolution evolves because it feels good. And because goodness is actually inextricable from pleasure. So you might say, no, 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 what do you mean? And in order to be good, you got to give up your pleasures. That's fucked. You got to give up your pseudo pleasures. I mean, I'm, 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 let's make this kind of crazy extreme for a second. Yeah. Even dying for a cause is a great pleasure. <laughs> right. Right. In other words, you know, words, when you lay it down, when you, even when you give up your life, Right. And to live in a world where you don't have anything you'd give up your life for is the most deadening experience you can possibly have. I want to get Right? I mean, it's like shocking. Right? To live in a world when there's nothing you would die for, now, you shouldn't go die for it. You should live for it. You should figure out what you want to die for and then yeah. go live for it. But to live in a world where there's nothing you're willing to give your life up for is the most deadening possible experience a
0: person can have. Wow. Yeah. And I think here's wow. one of the reasons why it gets confusing is the example I gave, like Cersei taking pleasure in the torturing of people, in the in the breaking down of another person's position, in her rise to power. And and the the important distinction you're making is those are even though they look and feel like pleasure, it's actually. A counterfeit pleasure. It may actually feel it's, an illicit it's pleasure. Actually a,
1: it's actually a counterfeit.
0: because it's because it, you're you're missing a one aspect of your development of your unique self, which is the actual experience of true self, your connection to the field. To recognize that that person that you're torturing, hurting, killing is actually you living a different life, and so you have to be in this distorted delusion to actually get pleasure from it. So, okay, you're, you're, so you're ba- not you're in batting, the truth.
1: You're, you're batting
0: too high today for me to keep up, okay?
1: So, <laughs> so, so let's, let's, let, let's play for a second, okay? So what's the pleasure? What's the pleasure that Circe's experiencing? It's the pleasure of power, uh-huh. right? It's the pleasure of impact, right? That actually my being impacts another being, and I actually sense that I'm causing them pain. So I experience the pleasure of power. Now that comes from, however, that's the paradox, and this again, we're going to grow corn. Mm-hmm. It comes from actually impotence, not potency. Mm-hmm. Because if I actually experience the genuine experience of my unique self, I actually have an experience of radical power at every second. Because I know I can, I can live and be in my unique self. And right? if I don't have an experience of unique self. I don't have experience that actually reality is moving through me and I've got a unique gift of radical aliveness to give that no one that ever was, is, or will be can give other than me, that that love desire is moving through me, then I feel impotent. Mm. There's a sense of radical emptiness. And the more powerful I am, Cersei is a powerful figure, the more powerful I am, the more I'm going to be desperate to experience my impact and power. So actually when I'm powerless, because genuine power comes only from unique self. My power is always unique. My power, the eros of my power is my plug at the end of that cord that plugs into the wall and gives me the unique currency of connection, the unique energies that's mine. I'm not just plugging into reality and getting energy. I'm getting Aubrey's energy. Mm. That's why I can't steal your energy. Mm -hmm. Right? In other words, in other words, when someone tries to parasite off your energy, you're like, whoa, that's my energy. Right? And there's Aubrey energy. That's different than Mark energy. we can exchange but ultimately I've got to be in devotion. Right? So It's your quality of energy. So when you're impotent, when you don't have power, okay, can I, can I tell you brother now, because you said something about ego we got to get back to, but I a 10 second story. Sure. I mean, it's, it's, it's uh, God, I haven't thought about this in a long time. You know, in 2006 was a hard moment in my life. It's kind of a big tragedy time. And I'd experienced a very big tragedy. And I was in Salt Lake City and I was staying at my my dear friend Kristen Ulmer's kind of, is a great skier, kind of way in the, the boondocks there. And I had to get to town, and I had gone through probably the most, you know, painful two weeks of my life. And I had to get to town for a critical meeting that I didn't want to go to, but I needed to to kind of engage it. And and by the way, good news is, thank God, there was a happy end, you know, to this story, right to this tragedy, right? I mean, to the extent that tragedies ever have happy ends, but you know, it was tragic, and but it, it it worked out okay, you know. And I I'm I'm so grateful for that. So. And I was, I hadn't slept up for two weeks, you know, an hour, literally an hour a night, no hyperbole. I mean, I was just gone. And so I'm, and Kristen says, you know, there's a bus. She had to go, you know, she was skiing that day. It was near Snowbird. So there's a bus that will take you into town. That bus in Utah, like, you know, from like where we were by Snowbird Mountain to get to the center of Salt Lake City came every like, I don't know, five days, right? So I'm sitting there waiting for the fucking bus. I'm going to be late for the meeting. I haven't slept. I have no energy. And I'm like, I'm done like I'm, you know, like I'm, I'm just done. Right. You know, and the, I, it was an experience. I was going, a betrayal that I was, I was working with. Then this car pulls up, you know, and says, Hey, you want a ride? You know? And I said, well, probably an ax murder, but what the fuck? I don't got a lot to lose at this <laughs> yeah, point. Fuck I'm it, just, I'm just taking the ride. Uh, yeah. So we, I get in the car and this Mormon woman, and she says, you know, I had this vision this morning that I was supposed to pick up this man. Right, you know, he needed a ride, and it was very important that I pick him up. So I came this route, and there you were. I'm like, okay, <laughs> right? <laughs> so you know, so I said, to her, like, who are you? And she starts telling me her story, and it's, it was a tragic story. Right? I can, I can literally, I can see myself in the car now. I can see the car where we're driving. I can hear her voice talking about her son, and her son betrayed her, and it was a drug story and a husband who left, and a, and a father, and, and, and there I was listening to her. And the truth is, my heart just opened, and we, we drove for an hour. And I'm, I was crying. I'm just listening to her story and I'm just kind of sharing with her back and we're talking and I completely forgot about like everything going on. We were wow, just there in the car and, and I get out of the car and she's Mormon and Mormon's about the tabernacle and you know, the reenactment of the Israelite covenant and about the temple, you know, about the priest. So she looks at me and she says, who are you? Are you the high priest? No one's ever talked to me like that. And I got out of the car Tears streaming down my face. And it was at a moment where I didn't know whether I'd be able to respond to what was going on appropriately. And I didn't know where my life was going to go in the next year. And I said, you know, even if it all goes bad, I can always listen to someone telling their story. And that's my unique self. I can do that. And I can give a person a sense that they're kind of radically beautiful and gorgeous. So no matter what happens, I'm good. Right. And from that moment on, it shifted then. And I kind of, I found myself again and, and everything else kind of moved. But it's, I, I found my power again. Now, I had no idea whether I could in this world at that moment navigate it, right? But I was, I was now, power was moving through me. That's power. That's, that's what power is.
0: That's real. Yeah, and, and to just finish this analogy Please. with Circe, I think they did a good job on the show. Actually, if you trace back all of the layers of impotence that she felt, First of all, her father, Tywin Lannister, monster of a man, never allowed her to express the natural power that was moving through her. It was always her brother, Jamie, And it was mm-hmm. always Tywin holding on to the mm-hmm. massive amount of power, never actually giving the children any real meaningful power, always staying yeah. in the super dominant position. Then she has to marry Robert Baratheon, doesn't want to marry him. He's a fucking... He's an animal. Kind of a a very vital animalistic animal, but he's a fucking animal. And then... She's in a romantic relationship with her brother Jamie, and And that happens. And (laughs) yeah, that's tough. And then she she's hiding that, and that's riddled in her own shame, which is also an a sense of impotence that she can't share her love. There, and it's and it's really actually a story of deep love. That's like one of the redeeming kind of threads. Is like this is really fucked up. This is incest. However, it's actually a. A meaningful love story between yeah. the between the two of them. So there's like levels on levels on levels that have just impacted this impotence. And then that comes out in the monstrosity of her claim for power over others. And the proof of that power being the pain that she's actually that she's actually inflicting. And so right. you see that. And then you can contrast that. And I want to contrast that with another character who happened to be season three He's my friend Ed Skrein. He's, he was Dario Naharis, who mm-hmm. is Uh, queen Daenerys's boyfriend Mm -hmm. and he is fully in his fuck like fully fully in his fuck and and Ed plays that character so great I was so I was heartbroken when they switched characters season four on because he just played it so well and Daenerys is trying to be like and he's the he's the head of this group of mercenaries and you know he does this very honoring thing for her kills the other mercenary says like I'm yours and she's like What's your deal? Like, explain to me, you. Why are you doing this? Right. Like, trying to figure out right, something. Right, and he's, right, And he goes, I'm a very simple man. I'm paraphrasing. He goes, I'm a very simple man to understand. There's two things that I live for. One is to fuck a woman who wants to fuck me. Right. <laughs> and he proves that, actually, because he never actually... Wants to be with any of the, the whores that are around town that all of his other, it's contrasted with all of his other mercenaries. They're like, why, why don't you want to be with this whore? He's like, no, 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 not for me. And so he explains it then. No, I only want to fuck a woman who wants to fuck me. That's number one. Number two, Amen. I want to kill the man who wants to kill me. And that's and that's like his simple, his simple credo, right? And it's this very interesting thing where. He's actually intensely good. An intensely good character in the film. And obviously, there's a field of context where killing is part of the no, whole game of the of the field. We're not applying it to the contemporary situation. Right, exactly. But he's an intensely good character in the show, which the show is riddled with very complex characters. But he's actually intensely good. And because he's not impotent in any stretch of the imagination, and he's fully in... He's fully in his fuck, and it actually allows him to be one of the most ethical characters in the whole show. So
1: that's gorgeous, right? So, I mean, there are four things you said. We're not going to pick up all of them, but let's just get the last one. And it enables him to be one of the most ethical characters in the show. So eros and ethics are not oppositions. Yeah. That's gorgeous, right? So we think the erotic and the ethical, they're complete oppositions. They're not right? In other words, Eros, and let's now link unique self and Eros, and unique self is one of the places where Eros comes fully alive. So when I'm in my Eros, I'm in my unique self, then I become profoundly ethical. I become noble. Mm. And then this character has a sense of nobility about him, Mm -hmm. right? And he's powerful because you actually own your fuck and fuck, right? The word fuck, which is a whole conversation. And as you know, I I was privileged to write a a kind of 20,000 word essay on the word fuck. That's a big and important word and how that word works, different
0: conversation. We'll we'll get to that, I hope, one day. Mm. But but for now- I have to remember that I I've, I have the tendency of using that word, having like integrated, read ass, having right. read the essay and right. then used read. it colloquially in the house. And then I say it and people are like, what is he saying? What's he saying, man? It's a good, it's a good reminder. It's so good. so, we so have, thank you for that. We have to get back to that. We <laughs> yeah, to, we, for we sure. Get back. We've never
1: gotten to it, but, um, but, but it's, it's on, it's on the agenda. But, but, but I mean, let's just be in this for a second. It's such a fucking big deal,
0: yeah, right? And
1: it's fucking awesome because fuck actually is an amplifier. Mm-hmm. It's a fucking big deal, yeah, right? It's like it's not ordinary. You have like an ordinary asshole and a fucking asshole. Yeah, so that's yeah. <laughs> one of the dimensions of fuck is you, it amplifies things. Yeah, it yeah. intensifies things. So if I'm in my unique self, which is my Eros, then ethics flow from my fullness. If I'm not in my unique self, meaning I'm de-eroticized, I'm split off from Eros, then I'm living in a void, and I need pseudo eros to cover it over. It's a very big deal. Now, when I'm in my eros and my unique self, I can actually experience the goodness of power. And we need to reclaim power as a virtue. We've made being powerless a virtue, which is part of the victim culture. You know, Sykes wrote a great book called A Nation of Victims. There was a great essay called A Culture of Victimhood, right? The victim right, derives their power from being powerless. So, therefore, the victim can never give up their position. The victim's always innocent, but the price of innocence is impotence, right? Mm. Right? The victim's always innocent, but the price of innocence is impotence, and the victim can never be potent because potent would be I'm not impotent, means I'm not powerless, but my power comes from being powerless. So, it's this, mm. this strange trap of victimhood, right, which you got to move beyond. I've got to actually step into my power, and my power is good. We have to claim the goodness of power. And not only that kind of liberal distinction, which is power for is good, but power over is bad, not true, right? There's power for that's sacred, light, and there's power for that's actually completely damaging. The mother who smothers, S slash mother, the mother who smothers her child and doesn't allow her child to speak is tragic right? In other words, right? The, the, the government, the fascist government that as a collective is the mother who smothers the people, right? The top down closed society that functions as a mother, right? So now it's power for China. The surveillance state of China is all about power for There's actually this new social contract in China, give up your kind of ordinary privacy and we will through machine intelligence figure out the kind of society you want and provide it for you. And MIT technological review just this morning, in the bathroom early, too much information, too much of an image, but you know, I'm sitting there reading MIT technological review about this social contract in China, right? China's the mother, give up, we'll control everything. Power four, for your sake, that's the contract, no freedom. Okay, so power for can be completely fucked, right? And completely fascist and totalitarian. And power over can be beautiful. Power over can be abusive. We've literally identified the word power with abuse. If a person's powerful, Oh, there were power relations there. There was power at play. I and mean, it's just a tragedy, you know, even, even in issues like sexual harassment, right? Okay, you've got a 30-year-old student and you've got a, you know, 45-year-old professor. Let's say he's her professor. And let's even say, right, that you know, they had this great, you know, relationship for two years and then she gets mad. And she accuses him of sexual harassment. And everyone says it was sexual harassment when actually it wasn't. And David Mamey you know, wrote a play about this called Oleana, about how this tragedy, exactly about this story, but everyone says there were power relations. Well, of course there were. There's always power relations between people, and the teacher had power, for sure, and she had power. You know, fact is, she just destroyed his career. Without there being a proper investigation, that's a fair amount of power. He can't do that to her. So, of course, there's always power at play between people, Mm -hmm. and of course, inappropriate power relations, quid pro quo, sexual harassment is completely wrong, or A guru who says, "You know, every all my students have to be obedient to me." Well, that guru can't sleep with their students because he's demanding obedience, or she's demanding obedience. There's no autonomy, right? But, but in other words, power relations are always at play. There's always power over in different ways. We all have power over each other. There's actually a great joy to power over, right? Power over means I'm taking responsibility, right? I'm grateful for the people have power over me. I have. Deep gratitude, and I also realize I have power over people, and I hold that responsibly and, and beautifully. And there's a reason why we call the divine in every great tradition the infinity of power. And so all this stuff is politically incorrect. You're not allowed to talk to power. We've integra- interrogated
0: power as being identical with abuse. It's not. Yeah, yeah, which which is a real mind fuck because yes, we all know there's that word that There get. is there is a disgusting nature to what power has done. We've seen our whole history books and even our lives filled with times where somebody had power power over us and used it in an abusive way. And we feel the contempt and rage for that. And so we see that. But then when we feel our own power and associate power with only those truly actually disgusting abuses of power, then we start to look at our own power with a sense of disgust and then we create this kind of double bind this thing that we know that we desire and actually we know anthroontologically again to use that word we know it's good we know right. this feeling is good but actually all of our associations and all of the cultural associations tell us that it's bad then we get very very confused gorgeous. and split off Ab- s- sweetheart that that's gorgeous right and, and we begin to see how we've get this
1: we're creating this field together right you have an anthroontological Right. And that's the word that we use here, meaning, meaning I have an interior knowing of value that lives within me that I can identify and trust. Anthro human being ontology for real. So I've got this anthro ontological experience that power actually has dignity. And then I'm told that power is only its abusive side. We identify power with its abusive side. And, and you point out correctly power, does her, power misused is horrific. It's a violation of all that we hold deal. Power misuse can be evil. That's mm-hmm. absolutely correct. However, that's not the nature of power. It's the misuse of power. Yep. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's, that's critically important. And Machiavelli got it wrong when he said power corrupts. Right? That, that was, that's the statement that went into culture. Power corrupts
0: right? That it, was the, some, it was somebody else. It was power corrupts and absolute, absolute power. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. absolutely. Who was that else? It was some like Lord Acton or something. Wasn't it? Acton? Was it Lord Acton or Machiavelli? We'll have to check that out. And then check it out, Christian. Lord Who Acton or Acton? Machiavelli.
1: Could so totally have been Lord Acton. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not wagering on that. Right. Um, Right? Lord, Lord acting is yes. yes. You should have bet on it. That. That's like the one time I've ever <laughs> you got it, man. had something where I actually nice, had a nicely quote done. source. You should, of... you
0: should put it down on that. Mm-hmm. Laid it down. That's right? Right. I'm writing it down.
1: I'm writing it down. Power yep. corrupts. <laughs> Gorgeous. But power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts. It's absolutely not true.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right? No, power doesn't corrupt. Power actually can ennoble. Power calls us to who we are. And power is our nature. I have a unique quality of power that no one that ever was, is, or will be can deploy in reality other than me. And if God, again, the God you don't believe in doesn't exist, not the caricatured God, but God as the field of the love intelligence and love beauty and love power. Right. If God lives in you as you, and right, that means that the only place that that infinity of power, which is divine can live is in your finitude. And you get the, the gorgeousness of that sentence. The mm. only place where that infinity of power of divine power can live is in your unique finitude your unique finitude participates in infinity. You deploy that divine power. So if you decide to wimp out and to go powerless, right, you're basically slapping the goddess in the face. She's demanding that you deploy your power there. Yes, Beirur. That's a word now people are familiar with. Clarify your motivation. Find, right, the, the deep heart of what's driving you. And I'll give you a great example. Barack Obama. So I was talking to Barack this morning. We have got a little morning, little morning, <laughs> morning chat. Morning tea? Yeah, morning tea shit. You know what I mean? Me, him, Michelle, you know, KK, yeah. right? And, you know, so I asked Barack, I mean, man, why'd you run for office? I wanted to serve people. Okay, I got it. Okay, man, but it's just just us here. Why'd you run for office? Uh, why'd you run for office, man? Well, he says, because, because, because fuck, it's so much pleasure. But what's the nature of that pleasure? It's the pleasure of power. Mm. Barack Obama, ran for office because of the intense pleasure of power, which he wanted to deploy, right? One hopes, and I trust that that's very likely true for for the sake of good, for the sake of truth, for the sake of beauty. But if there just would have been an abstract calculus, and we got to understand the nature of the motivational architecture, right, of the inherent cosmos that lives in us, if there just would have been, oh, you'll become president, and you'll be able to click off a few boxes that do good, but there will not be an experience of the pleasure of your unique power, there's no way he would have subjected himself, his family, right, his entire world to 20-hour grueling days, right, intense pain, right, intense danger, Right, what actually allured him. He was allured to run for president. It
0: moved in his body, it yeah. throbbed, and it should. Yeah. Right, and 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 that's and and the acknowledgement of which is what makes you trustable,
1: and the acknowledgement with of which is
0: exactly what makes you trustable. An interesting, just a story to share is in my the second time I sat with Maestro Orlando Chuandama, the mm-hmm. Dragon of the Jungle. Mm-hmm. You know, El Dragón de la Selva. He's a in the deep Quechua lineage. Did a documentary about him, but I sit with him, and Dragon is his power animal. And appropriately, in the second, you know, second time I drank with him. I was visited by this giant dragon made of smoke, giant gray dragon made of smoke, filled up the sky like yeah. I was looking at the top of a stadium, like mm-hmm. that big. And he's just looking down at me and says, you want power? And I go, whoa, well, I certainly can't lie to this dragon here, but that's a very confronting Lying question. Lying to dragons is bad. <laughs> yeah, it's for sure. Bad. So I was like, yes. And I felt like, I was brave, but it's the truth. I do. I want power. And the dragon goes, why? And then I was like, oh, man, he's really pressing here. All right. Uh, to help people. And I actually believed, I believed that answer. And it, and, and it was true. But then the dragon goes, are you sure? And actually went through, because that answer was true, but incomplete. True, but partial. My answer that I gave to the dragon, which was, I want to help people. Yes, true. But, but partial. And it showed me all of these instances in my life where I've taken great joy in my power. And whether that was on the basketball court or whether that was in another situation where I got to feel the fuck again, the feel the fuck of being a powerful being, you know, and I never misused it. So it wasn't a misuse of power, but it was also the dragon was showing me the pleasure of my own power and saying like, yes, you do want to help people. However, you fucking enjoy it and don't forget it. And then as soon as and I acknowledge own it, that and, be and own it, it, I jumped on the dragon's back and we cruised through the cosmos in this beautiful ride. And it was one of the I most profound it. and brief two minutes in its entirety. You know, obviously time is strange when you're in this kind right. of quantum vision right. state. And, and riding a dragon. And riding a dragon. Just but saying. it was this like beautiful moment that I've never forgot. And at that point, any part of my pleasure of power that was split off, was reconciled in a really like beautiful way. And that, that made me a lot more trustable, trustable. And it made you more good and it made you more true and
1: it made you more beautiful. Right. And that's, that's the point of unique self. Unique self demands that you actually step into your power. And, and and part of our power is right. To ensure that every human being has power. Yep. Right. In, In other words, you know, what unique self says is that every human being deserves to experience the unique nature of their own power and and to violate a person's power, right? To oppress the powerless, right? To abuse the powerless is therefore the ultimate violation, Mm -hmm. right? But when I'm in my power, my power, right? Is power for, my power recognizes the dimension of power over I have, right? And I allow my power to guide me. But again, only if I clarify it again and again and again, but that clarification is a joy. I'm yeah. always clarifying, right? What's moving me, and this is where the ego thing is important. So ego, right? So you mentioned ego, which is which is such a big deal because ego gets demonized, and you could define unique self as higher individuation beyond ego.
0: Hmm.
1: That's a that's a really good right right. Unique self is the your higher individuation beyond ego, but not that leaves ego behind because ego actually pre figure's unique self. Ego is an illusion to unique self. Ego is just like, I and mean, here's a good example. Just like in metaphysics, the idea that you as this personality is immortal, is going to live forever, which is not true. You're not going to live forever as this personality. But that, that false claim is pointing to something that's true which is there is continuity of consciousness and there is some unique dimension of you. It actually lives forever, not your particular personality, separate self embodiment. What lives forever is the pattern of your unique self or the essential thread of your story. But that false sense of this is going to be immortal is always going to be Mark in this way or Aubrey in this way is pointing to a deeper truth. So the ego prefigures unique self. It points to unique self and the ego is important. Because it's telling something that's true. It says I matter. I'm important, right? And I'm thinking about myself, and I'm thinking about myself all the time, right? And so enlightenment teachers tell you, or psychologists tell you, each in their own way. Well, the reason you're thinking about yourself all the time is because you're fucked, right? It, you're a narcissist, right? You, you can't. You're not. You're non-empathetic. You're a little sociopathic, right? But actually. And those might be true for some people, but, but actually most people for an enormous amount of time, I'm going to say most of the stuff for an enormous amount of time, people think about themselves. That's actually true. That is what human beings do. They spend an enormous amount of time thinking about themselves, but not because they're narcissistic, not because they're fucked up, but because they're eavesdropping on the divine conversation. it's when I'm thinking about myself, and this is a, a pointing out instruction, I'm eavesdropping on reality, thinking about me—it's very beautiful. And I'm not thinking about myself all the time because I'm—I'm somehow flawed. And again, that violates my anthropological sense of my own goodness. When my teacher tells me you shouldn't be thinking about yourself, now you want to be thinking a lot about other people. and You want to be feeling people a lot, and you want to be in service. You want to be fit for service, right? You want to be in devotion, but you're also thinking about: Well, am I am I devoted in the right way? Am I am I showing up in the right way? Am I? Am I able to kind of, you know, be, right? You know, that hurt. I got to work with that hurt. You're thinking about yourself because you matter.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And and so ego prefigures the experience that you matter. And you never
0: want to evolve beyond ego. And
1: you can't trust people who claim that they evolved
0: beyond ego. Yeah, the, the most toxically selfish individuals, I wouldn't say maybe the most, but one characteristic of some what I would call toxically selfish or egotistical individuals is their belief that being egotistical or selfish is shameful or bad. So actually their selfishness and their egotism is in the shadow. It's split off from what they'll accept from themselves. So they actually don't see how unbelievably selfish they are because they won't allow themselves to see any degree of selfishness.
1: You you just described,
0: you just beautifully
1: described, right? The ideology of narcissism. And right, a narcissist is disgusted with themselves, right? And since they're disgusted with themselves, but they, they split off that disgust. They can't hold that self-referential at all, as you exactly described. They split it off. But, but self-disgust actually creates narcissism. Split off self-disgust is the ideology of a narcissist. Mm. And a narcissist means I'm actually really, I've got a social demeanor, right, of empathy, but really it's all about me. Mm. Right, but, but because I can't own... Right, that healthy egoic sense that can and should live in me. And and again, you know, I had a a friend who we're still in in you know in touch. We lost touch for a while. And I think he's a good man. He went through a, a hard time. And his, you he was he was and is a significant public teacher. And at a certain point he was, you know, one of the most significant public teachers kind of, and I'd say the uh, the kind of North American, you know, evolutionary scene, if you will. And his basic teaching was evolution beyond ego. Evolve beyond ego. That is the most damaging teacher you can possibly teach someone because no one ever evolves beyond ego. Mm-hmm. And if you claim to have evolved, claim to have evolved beyond ego, you're not trustworthy because you can't call the person out on anything because I've evolved beyond ego. You never evolved beyond ego. You evolve beyond your exclusive identification with ego. Mm-hmm. I'm not identified with me ego because okay, that's my ego at play. And I also want to listen to my ego. Because my ego's reaching for something, it's reaching for unique self. And, and so the ego prefigures something. I mean, here's a good example. You know, that that Course of Miracles, which is a very important text in a lot of ways. If, the Course of Miracles has something to offer, and it's also complex. So the Course of Miracles has, has a whole thing about not being special. Don't think you're special. Well, that's a mistake. Your ego shouldn't hijack the experience of specialness, because that's aggressive. That's like, I'm special mm, and you're not, and you're not, mm-hmm. and you can do it in that energy. Right? Hey, I'm special. I know what you're doing. Stuck doing this podcast here and wherever the fuck Austin, but I'm special. I live in Vermont in a Victorian house with a dog. Right. I mean, right. And so mm-hmm. there's like, there's an ugly energy to it. It's like, it's aggressive. It's like, right. But there's also like, I am so special and you are so special. And it's such a special moment that, that, that our intimacy has got to meet in the world. That's trustable, right? So actually you are special, but your ego hijacks the specialness of your unique self. Yeah. So that, that split, that distinction, the ego always betrays. The unique self is loyal, right? The ego is always greedy. The unique self has the capacity to be satisfied. The ego is always a victim, the unique self is a player at the table. Right? The ego always says, "I want more." Next self says, "Yeah, I've got enough." Right? And, and you can go through—it's—it's a, it's a long list. The, the response of the ego is very different than the response of the unique self. Mm-hmm. But the ego is pointing towards the unique self, so we need to reclaim and put the ego back on the table. And by the way, BTW, the best. Developmental studies we have that have been done. Suzanne Cookreuter, right, and, and a bunch of other, right, kind of good writers have pointed out that in developmental psychographs, the ego always exists at the highest levels of development, both spiritual and psychological. But the ego gets more subtle, right? It gets more harder to detect. You know, it appears more noble and it should. The ego should always should always be in conversation with the ego. You cannot trust a person, right, who's dissociated from their ego or thinks they've they've evolved beyond their ego, their ego. And a person who actually hasn't is stuck in their ego, right, but knows they are, it's trustable. We can have a conversation. Mm-hmm. So never evolve beyond ego. That's our spiritual advice, right? Evolve beyond identification with the ego, but let the ego whisper in your ear, because it's it's pointing you somewhere, mm-hmm. which is towards unique self.
0: Mm-hmm. Like that. Yep, and and I think one of the things that we've referenced here is when we have these incomplete, incorrect, true but partial stories right. that are, it actually leaves a lot of space for shadow, that thing that we do not see and that yeah. actually guides us from the murky depths of our psyche, and it's a place that I've been, uh, you know, allured to go in this conversation to actually talk about, and actually because of the unique beliefs and the unique way that we have things, we all have a unique. Shadow, Some aspect of ourselves that we don't see. And, and so you have a really kind of also advanced understanding of, of this concept and also some other aspects that actually even go deeper into the lineage. So let's, let's dive in there now. And then just leaving a breadcrumb because there's some really exciting stuff to go about. Taking your unique risk. Wow, yeah. As well. So, so we gotta get we gotta get to that. But we let's dive in, let's dive into the shadow aspect. Yeah, so let's we've dive, been, into, we've been let's dive
1: into shadow aspect. But again, you're you're fucking up fucking us up today because you're just you're batting so high. So, right. And because you just said something in passing, which is really important. I just wanna mm-hmm. I wanna throw it back on the table, which is the reason we need a new story of value, right, based on first principles and first values. Right to actually respond to the meta crisis and to create this this new human and new humanity, right? We need that because because that which organizes a complex system and makes it coherent is the simple principles that get iterated again and again. But what you pointed out and added to that is you got to get those simple principles right. Right. In other words, when you're creating a foundational structure, when you're telling a story of value, you can't be casual. You got to be rigorous. And and so there's not a word that we've spoken today, right? And, and I say this kind of trembling before God that I haven't spent 30, 40 years thinking about carefully and then having people challenge and then, you know, working with it with students and working with it clinically and then challenging myself again. So when, when we get to a, a simple formulation today, right, it's a second simplicity. And, and that it's just out of integrity, right, to put models into the world that are kind of sloppy because a sloppy model causes suffering, right? And, 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 and a, a sloppy model and a model that's kind of true but partial but claims to be whole actually destroys the very structure of society, right? So we need a story of self that's accurate. We need a story of relationship. We need a story of value. It, so it's, it's, these, are not, these are not meta-theoretical conversations. You know, that phrase that we, we invoked earlier, it grows corn. Right, so getting it right, getting it per se, so like this distinction between ego and unique self, that's not some stupid casual conversation. It's everything, right? In other words, if you put a major teaching into the center of Western culture, which is what's happened in the intelligentsia, evolved beyond ego, then you violate your own inner sense of ego, and you feel fundamental shame, right, about who you actually are, and then you become split off from your own goodness. That's where shadow emerges. That's always how it happens. So, so it's a great segue into shadow. I just really appreciated you saying it. So mm-hmm. yay. It's yep. the last nice thing I'm going to say to you today. So just relax. <laughs> okay. Don't get excited. Okay. <laughs> so, so, so shadow. Shadow is a very, very big deal. Shadow is a very big deal. And in, in the Unique Self book, there's 100 pages, right, on shadow. And with Claire Moulinere, who's a, you know, the head of our Unique Self Institute, we're going to actually put out a, an actual book on shadow, on Unique Shadow. It's crazy important. So here's, here's the 10 seconds of it right? I know it's not going to be okay. 12 seconds. Okay. Mm-hmm. A dude named Robert Bly. It's a good dude, right? Invoked a lot of drumming circles, put a lot of great poetry books out in, and made a real contribution and fuck this next one up. So we mean that, you know, affectionately, right? Wrote a book called a little book on shadow. That book is widely quoted, you know, throughout, I mean, just last night at your house, we were talking a little bit about shadow and someone said, yeah, I read that book. And so yeah, I read that book. So it's, it's this book where Robert Bly tries to explain what shadow is. And there's another book which became very popular in human potential circles, uh, a book with a black cover appropriate, I guess, for a shadow book by edited by Connie Zweig, put out by Jeremy Tarcher called um, Meeting the Shadow. About 60 essays. And they all share the same common and false assumption, which basically kills the conversation. Right? And again, lots of good in those essays, obviously. But, but they got something fundamentally wrong, which we have to correct. Which is they identify shadow with what I would call shadow qualities. Okay? So the shadow is, you know, you know, Robert Bly says, I wanted to kill my brother and just destroy him. But I couldn't say that out loud. So I put it in the bag. That was my shadow in the bag, my desire to kill my brother. And he goes through, you know, rage and jealousy and pettiness and you know all the all, all the vices. Right? We we put all that stuff in the bag. And then Bly says, but you got in order to be whole, you gotta integrate your shadow. So The simple question is, well, why you want to integrate your desire to kill your brother? Maybe you shouldn't, maybe you just shouldn't kill your brother, right? You know what I mean? I mean, you want to integrate your kind of desire to murder your dog. Well, maybe don't murder your dog, work it out, right? So of course, what he means is, and it's not, it's not entirely wrong. It's true, but partial. Well, if you don't own those dark desires, right, they're going to take, they're going to take the, the wheel, right, of your vehicle, right? Because you've split them off and okay, that's fair enough. That's good. I mean, that's, that's legitimate. It's a legitimate answer. It doesn't get it, right? I mean, there's, there's this, this, this movement towards owning your shadow that's very powerful, right? Integrate the shadow, really? Just so it doesn't split off and doesn't steal the wheel of your life. I mean, valid, something bigger. There's, we have the sense that there's a larger wholeness that happens, right? When I, when I integrate the split off shadow. So why? So the answer is because my shadow, and again, I'm saying this in the level of second simplicity, okay? My shadow is not my shadow qualities. My shadow is the light of my unique self, if you will. You know, I'll just, I'll do it with the sacred text. There's a lot of ways to do this, but just say, Ne'er Elohim Nishmat Adam, a beautiful lineage text. The the candle of the divine is the person of the human, the person of man, the soul of man. Meaning, I'm light. I'm a unique singular frequency of light. That singular frequency of light is my obreness. That's the singular frequency of my light. Now, let's say that Aubrey takes a big part of his singular frequency of light. He's not willing to live it. Okay, let's say he's supposed to stand for this or that. He's supposed to do this, to express this, to create this, but he's not willing to do it because for whatever the set of reasons is. So he splits that off and it's now in darkness. That's shadow. Shadow is your unlived story. Shadow is your unlived unique self. Or shadow is the distortion of your unique self. If I kind of use an earlier language, which I use in a book way back when, when I was, you know, a kid, right? Soul print. Well, let's call it soul print for it. It's a nice word to use, right? It's a, it's a, it's a, I, I, I later turned to the word unique self for too long of an academic conversation, why that happened, but, but your unlived soul print, your distorted soul print, that's your shadow. Okay. That's a big deal. All right? So if you take a piece of who you actually are and you split it off and you put it in darkness, whoa, that shadow. Now then that shadow is your actual unlived self. And it wants to be lived. It wants to attract your attention. It wants you to like, come live me. So what it does is it acts out. Those are shadow qualities. Right. In other words, you act out in shadow qualities. And I, I, here's just an image. This came, I just remember this when I was first teaching this, I was in Germany with my friend Diane. And we were teaching this notion of that. There's no such thing as shadow. There's only unique shadow. That's really, shadow doesn't exist. Shadow is generally used as a generic term. It's not generic. Shadow is just like there's a unique obligation. There's unique responsibility. There's a unique joy. There's, there's actually unique shadow. So I was giving a seminar in Germany and there, there was one guy in the room who was just like fantastic, just like present and alive. And you know, that person in the room that everyone was just kind of in resonance with and just an incredibly lovely man. Right. And so I'm doing the unique shadow thing and he's saying like, you know, you know, I don't, I don't get this. This is ridiculous. Right. And I said, well, okay. What's your unique shadow? Is ah. said, up to you? You can tell me privately. He said, well, I'll tell you. Okay. And his voice gets a little hard and he says, you know, I go to clubs, you know, I'm gay and I do tons of meth and fisting and I'm doing it all the time. And that's my unique shadow. I said, well, first, why is that shadowy? So, you know, the room kind of laughed. Like, what was the, tell me where the problem was. Mm. So he said, well, because I'm doing it too much. I don't want to be doing it that much. I'm doing it all the time. You know, it's out of control. I said, okay, well, that's fair. That's fair. I said, well, just tell me about what you do. Right. He says, well, I'm a therapist. I said, great. You're a therapist. Okay. How how does your clientele work? You know, I'm, I'm very nice to them and, you know, people love being with me, you know, and I, I hold people really well. I said, wow, that's great. What do you do when someone has like a really significant thing? They're fucking up. Do you tell them? Well, I, I think that's, you don't want to be that kind of confrontational in that kind of way. So what you got to do is you really got to hold the person. I said, oh, okay. So when someone has like a real fuck up and you're their therapist, You kind of hold them, but you don't really confront them. You don't go all the way in. So he said, you got to be careful to go all the way in. It's really, I said, oh, really? You got to be careful to go all the way in, right? So you're a therapist. Your life's dedicated to therapy. This is your unique self. And you're responsible for your people, but you don't go all the way in, right? And what's your shadow? Your unique shadow? Going all the way in. Going all the way in. Elbow
0: deep. Elbow deep all the way in. <laughs> oh, that was too much. I'm like, oh, right? I apologize. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> that was too much for me. Right. I was like, no. <laughs> that was that, that, that's on you. Uh, that's on me. That's, that's my bad, everybody. That's on Sorry. you. Sorry. That's on you. Unnecessary. Unnecessary. Unnecessary.
1: Yep. But it was really a beautiful moment. And yep. he was crying, and I was crying. And this beautiful guy. And and he actually got, we all got together in that moment. It was brave of him, and he blew the place open. He was actually a intensely beautiful man, and he did this. This was like a devotional service. Sometimes you have in a deep seminar, someone stands for the whole group. And actually it turned out he needed the intensity of actually fulfilling his unique self and being in that eros and actually confronting people in a way that was loving, but he was afraid to. So he only became a holding feminine receptive space. So he was dissociated from his unique self. An essential part of his unique self was in shadow, It was distorted, his fundamental unique self was distorted. So it expressed itself in shadow. And and of course, what was so beautiful about the moment is that everyone kind of assumed, like, there's no way you can make this work, right? This is like, this is not, but it always works. It's always true that when you're not living a dimension of your story, your unique story, not your ego story, right? When teachers say move beyond your story, they're true, but partial. Move beyond your contrived ego story and embrace your unique self story, and we owe each other a a big conversation on story, so I know that, right? Embrace your unique self story the precise extent that you split off any part of your story. Story in the lineage, the Hebrew word for Sipur story is sapir, sapphire, which is the blue light. And in meditation, and the the psychedelics of meditation, the experience of the blue sapphire sapphire light is in all the traditions equated with unique self. That experience, Muktananda, for example, from the Siddhi Yoga tradition, always would talk about the blue light which was the experience of God in you as you. Right? So when you're sapir, your sapphire, your story, same word in Hebrew, sapir and sipur, right? Same word, sapphire and story. When part of your sapphire, your story is split off, it goes into shadow, your unique self distortion, right? that's that's your unique shadow. And and that's why you gotta integrate it. It's so gorgeous. You integrate it, not just because if you split it off, it's gonna take the wheel, because it's you right now you actually follow the yellow brick road of your unique shadow back to your unique self
0: wow one of the things that i think people don't really sometimes realize is that part of your unique self like the body itself actually returns Mm -hmm. in your unique self in, in a way it's like we think of the body as just the the animalistic side and then we think of the unique self as the transcendence of that but actually it's the inclusion and transcendence of it and so there's aspects of our animality yeah that are there our desire to just like you know all of the i mean we have we carry with us traces of all the mammals that have kind of come before maybe some have taken different turns but there's a there's a feral king kong kind of pound your chest and and you know, raise up and fight your rivals, there's a piece of that aggression that's part Good, of our yeah, animality. Again. Nice. Mm. And there's a piece of our desire to, to fuck, you know, to like, to really, like, to really fuck. And those are aspects, actually, that if we don't claim those as part of our unique self, now, it doesn't mean that those actually have to turn to using your fists. Your fuck doesn't also have to mean that you use it to sleep with people. But you have to find that animality and know that that's in you. Know that that impulse towards aggression, that impulse and desire to fuck that. You have to find that, locate that, and then weave that into your story, however it's woven. So so you're weaving, you know, again, beautiful, right?
1: You associated from unique shadow to animality, from shadow to animality. So our animality is in shadow. Mm -hmm. We got to claim it in some way. Yes. So now let's put the two together, brother. Okay. So you don't just have animality. You have unique animality. Mm. And this is a very, very, very big deal. Yeah. Okay. I've got a unique fuck. Yeah. And this is, is, you know, for our, you know, we have a big set of conversations to have on sexuality. So this is really for there. But I just want to say a word about it for a second. No one has just animality. You have unique animality. So what we try and do is we try and claim our animal in a way that's not true to ourselves, mm. right? One of the names for unique animality is kink, mm. right? Kink is an expression of unique animality, but kink is only one expression of it. We think that's the whole thing. We think when we're not actually accessing our unique animality, often we'll go for generic kink. Let me go for generic kink. Cause I actually feel a little empty. That makes me feel alive. Let me go for that. Now kink is beautiful, right? But actually, you want to go for your unique kink. Paradoxically, you can go for the generic kink. You want to find your own, right? Your own means that you have a unique sexuality. And just just stay with me for a second, brother, because this is, I'm actually, I'm just so delighted that we get to have real conversations in the world. It just, it makes the world so much of a better place, right? So I'm just feeling a wave of just delight and Mm -hmm. gratitude for for, for the beauty of, of a real conversation. So we think that, sex is an event that fuck is an event that happens. Sex is not an event. Sex is a journey. And it's a big distinction for us. there are sexual events. Okay. We did that. We did that kind of sex. We did. These are all events and the events are over, but sexing my unique sexing is not an event. It's not a series of events. It's a journey. And it's a journey into the depth of my unique self. So stay with me for a second the only way to actually be able to liberate oneself from the deadening effect of, of pornography, which is deadening, you know, we need a new kind of pornography, new kind of erotica, which is a different conversation that we've, we've had offline. And, and we'll have, we've written about, and we'll talk about it at a different time, I'm sure. So we need to move from kind of porn 1.0 to kind of erotica 2.0, right? From 1.0 to porn 2.0, different conversation. But for now, let's talk about just kind of the deadening. I remember I was with, with a partner about a decade ago, and we said, you know, okay, let's try the porn thing. Let's take a look, right? You know, so we, and she had a very fancy TV, you know, in this beautiful house kind of overlooking the ocean. There we are kind of ready to take. We're flipping, flipping, flipping for two said, It was one thing was more boring than the next. It was like, we're just, we were yawning. Mm. It just wasn't interesting, right? It, it wasn't erotic, right? So now it's porn kind of focuses on sensation and on event. And not on journey. But but the, the pull is real. The pull of, of kind of deadening pornography. I'm talking about kind of low-grade, right? Degraded pornography is real because there's there's an instant, you know, arousal that can happen. But the only way to actually liberate yourself from pornography, which is a huge issue that's actually deadening to you, right? Right. So if it's liberating to you, so stay with it. Right. If it's ethical, if there's no sexual slavery involved, right? If it's, you know, it's done appropriately, well, you know, great. And there's a actually a a channel called kink.com, where a friend of mine worked, where they actually try and create kind of an ethical context, for example. So if it's ethical and it's, it's arousing to you and everyone's treated in a holy way, so mad blessings to it, but you got to be careful. And that's a larger conversation I've shifted on pornography over the years because I've actually seen, you know, the devastating effect on, you know, kids who come to me who are 20. Yeah. have gone through eight years. So that's a different conversation. But the only way to actually liberate yourself from it is to actually find your unique fuck. In other words, the only thing that is more alluring than pornography is the unique depth of your own unique animality, right? And it's very beautiful. It's very subtle. There's a unique way your body wants to move. There's a unique journey that deepens. And in a relationship, if you're together doing sex as a series of events, the sex and the relationship will die because you run out of events and you can hire a million event planners, right? And you get a million toys and tools, and you can have a million new partners who come in every once in a while to kind of, right, create the event. We're creating a new event with a new partner. I'm not saying that those are all possibilities, but those won't get you home. If those are part of something else, they're part of your unique sexual journey, your beloved's unique sexual journey, and now you're in a sexual journey together into your own unique embodiment, your unique animality, Then that's more beautiful when you're 30 than when you're 20, when you're 40 than when you're 30, when you're 50 than when you're 40, when you're 60, when you're 70, when you're 80, and when you're 90. And by the way, I don't want to keep the hundred, you know, you know, centurions out of the story. It's really beautiful.
0: So yes, on animality, I would just say unique animality. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's good to, it's good to understand too, because then we're not all trying to think like, oh man, I'm not expressing some aspect of my animality because look at this other person over right. here. You know, it's right. like we're not all designed to be Kyle or Tim Kennedy or David Goggins or whoever these people. It's not always how it's not always how our unique oh, those are all makeup. Scho- those are scholars, that listen <laughs> well in, in their own way. Scholars of the flesh. Scholars of the flesh and Right. Like, yeah. right.
1: And, and and your unique animality is is wild, right? I mean, I remember twenty years ago. You know, I, I was going out with a woman who was 20, was, was 30 years ago. might me be 35. How old am I? I'm only 30. Jesus. Anyways, I can't get the date straight. Okay. So, so it was a long time ago. I was going out with this woman, right? Just gorgeous human being. And for whatever reason, this part of her body, right, was, was the place she was aroused. And it was a unique- Mark's mentioning her rib, his ribs. Right, right, right. And 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 that whole area was, that's where Eros lived for her. Right? And it was a unique, and it, it had, a, had a whole, there's a whole history to it. And, and there was a, so your unique animality is part of your unique myth. It's part of your unique story. It probably has something to say to you. Finding it and living it is, is the journey of a lifetime. And when that happens, the body becomes, the body sings. The body's intelligent, the body whispers, the body tells us things. When we say, through my body, I vision God, the verse in Job, it's not about the body as a generic body, right? The body is unique, that's what we talked about in our first dialogue of, of who are you. The body's unique, and so my animality is unique. That's a big deal, that's a big I'm super, super happy you brought that onto play because we want our animality, but we take somebody else's, yeah. right? <laughs> that, that doesn't work, It yeah. doesn't work,
0: yay. It's, uh, something occurred to me in this conversation and it it is, I offer it with the danger of leading us down, uh, another path that maybe not be the best path for this conversation, but it occurs to me that every one of our curse words that came to mind right. has to do with our animality. That does lead us down a different path. You are right. Fuck, shit, shit. piss, cunt, pussy, asshole, cock. That's right. Every one of our curse words has something to do with our animality. And and it's, it's interesting. Even having that as the bad words starts to create, you know, shadow. Is, this is, it starts uh, to split us off I hate from when you, our essential animality. I hate when you do this, Aubrey. <laughs> right, 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 right. I know you're, it's
1: beautiful, right? It is. It's, it's such a, such an important thing to say. So we got to let's stand it for a sec. Cause it's, yeah. it's such a big fucking deal. Right. Um, we normally understand, and you brought us into the world of shame. Okay. Mm-hmm. You you open the door to shame, and, and and we we've already made a commitment to each other. That's like, that's three conversations yeah. we gotta <laughs> have. Big fucking time. It's a yeah. big conversation, but in a word. The initial level of shame is I have an experience of my aliveness. You know, I'm hanging out at home with my mother. She's single. But she just got for the first time a new apartment. Isn't that great? She's out there talking to the painter. Right. I'm hearing a lot of noises out there with her talking to the painter. This is a true clinical story. It says something's going on with her and the painter, you know, and there we are, and dad's not home. I'm here, right, in the room. And I'm feeling a little, you know, I'm feeling my own aliveness, my own kind of eros moving in me. So mommy left her purse in the room. And I go into the purse, I find her lipstick. And all these white walls, isn't that nice? And mommy's busy out there. So I take out the lipstick and I just start drawing on the walls, and I'm really excited. And there's another thing, a lipstick, and mommy's still out there. And right? Wow. Look at that wall. It's filled with a crazy lipstick. And then, then I go outside to find mommy and she seems a little bit too close to the painter, but whatever. I'm, I'm, you know, four years old. I say, mommy, come in, come in, come in. It's like, what are you doing here? And then she comes in with me. She's already a little bit irate. And she comes in and she sees the lipstick all over the room and says, you little bitch, what did you do? Mm-hmm. Whoa. Right. So that was my aliveness. My aliveness just got shamed when I'm very, very young, my goodness and aliveness are inextricably bound. And we all have an experience of our aliveness, whether it's our sexual aliveness, right, being shamed. And so we we gotta move through shame, and shame is insidious and multi-layered by we gotta move through shame by actually telling that story, by by being fair witness, by, you know, shame festers in the dark. But here's the thing, and this is what you're pointing to: that takes you only through the first level of shame. There's a deeper level of shame, which, which we don't have time to go into now, but I call it the shame of finitude, finitude, my, my mortality. And one of the three dimensions of the shame of finitude is the shame of my animality. And so we have this paradox on the one hand, you're an animal, right? Is a curse or you're an animal as a compliment, right? Depending on the context, but there's the shame of animality right? And the shame of animality is because animals seem to move in a herd, right? We don't actually see them as unique. We, they seem to move based on instinct, not based on choice. And I'm not going to get into the kind of, you know, studies of animals and see what is true about that, what's not, but clearly animals don't have the same level of choice as humans and don't have the same level of individuation as humans and animals don't build hospitals, right? So in other words, the notion that actually animals and humans are the same is a dumb idea, right? The notion that Animals are, as Descartes thought, split off from the world of soul and life is also a horrifically cruel idea and creates factory farms. But for now, let's just say the sham of animality is that that animality is, is this dimension of me, which is not human, this dimension of me, which hijacks the wheel of my life, right? It's not my kind of public face. It's not my nobility. So I'm shamed by my animality. So what we do is we take those words that express our animality, cock, shitting, pissing, fucking, right? You're an asshole. What does it mean you call someone an asshole? Well, what does that even mean? You're an asshole. What, how do you, what do you even work with that sentence? Right? Really? I'm not a finger. Really? I thought I was a belly. No, you're an asshole. What does that mean? Right? You're a fucking asshole. Right? Meaning double animality right? You're full of shit, you fucking asshole, right? <laughs> Triple animality, you cunt fucking asshole cocksucker, right? Right. <laughs> what are we doing? Right. Right. We're kind of, we're kind of piling on the animality here. Right. Right. Uh-huh. So we exile the shame into language. Yeah. Wow. Right. It's why actually reclaiming words is a big deal. And one of our promissory notes that we have not fulfilled, which we will at the right time is talk about the word fuck. Mm-hmm. It's right? so a reclaiming these words, and reclaiming my animality, but but not by regressing to my animality, but by embracing and weaving my animality into my nobility, right? There's no nobility unless I'm in my animality, right? Split off my, my animality, right, breathes my nobility because my nobility comes from my power, right? From my fullness or right? from my standing in it. And you can't stand in it as a disembodied artificial intelligence. You stand in your body. You stand in your cells. You stand in in all of it that's moving through you. That's where nobility comes from. It's where beauty comes from. So animality has to be embraced, right? And we got to move past the shame of animality, but I've got to embrace my unique animality. And opera's animality is different than Marx. I mean, it's like a funny thing to say, and there's like a lot of jokes we could do now, and we're going to, there's definitely a a road down there. Mm -hmm. But just for a second, I'll bracket it. It's actually a very big deal. Because if I can't embrace someone else's animality, whether it's a beloved or a brother or a beloved brother, then I can't actually find them. Because they've got a different quality of animality than I do. And if I subtly shame my close friends or my beloved's animality, and there's all sorts of subtle ways we shame it by kind of pushing it away. So wow, this is a big yeah. It's a big road. Yeah. It's a big road.
0: This is part of the, this is part of the journey too, and and again, this conversation, the the overarching theme is your unique self and part of understanding your unique self is to reclaim all of the aspects of your unique self including including these aspects that we mentioned all the split off stuff which is the just dis- it's your
1: right all the split off stuff is has to be brought to the table right because at its root it's holding a dimension of your uniqueness i mean and we, we, I, we, we want to talk about unique risk for sure before we finish but maybe let's just talk about joy and loneliness just for a second sure. Little joy, little loneliness. So just talk about loneliness for a second, right? All the lonely people. I mean, I just uh, think I'd forgotten until about the second. In, in my early 20s, I spent maybe age 20 to 26, 27, wanting only to write about one thing loneliness. And I, I devoured the literature on loneliness, both the internal literature, just feeling to my own, just a very profound loneliness. I was intensely lonely. And I got divorced in my very, very, very early twenties. If I had to go back and do it again, I I probably would stay in. And what moved the divorce was this intense feeling of loneliness. And I felt, you know, that 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 actually that was wrong. And it felt like a, a violation. And I was deeply attuned, you know, to just the loneliness of people. You know, mm-hmm. all the lonely people. And what does it mean to be lonely? Right. So we, we describe loneliness. Poetry describes loneliness, but we have to kind of define it to get it. So, loneliness is my inability to share my soul print with another person, right? To share my unique self with another person. It's not just a feeling. It's not just a black. It's not just a depression, right? Loneliness is my inability to share the essence of who I am with another person. And there's not that many people we can share it with right? And so people say, why, why, why are we lonely? Because we, we don't have people to share it with. Well, that's sometimes true, right? We need someone to share it with, but often we're lonely, not because we don't have people to share it with, but because A, we don't know how to share it, or B, we don't know what it is, mm. right? In other words, you can't share your soul print or your unique self unless you have a sense of what it is, right? So if I'm actually alienated from my own soul print, my own uni- unique self, I can't share it with anyone. And the experience of the interior of me being unable to talk to the interior of you uniquely, if my unique interior can't make your unique interior, life is not worth living. That's the human experience. It's an accurate experience. There's actually a text on this. And the text is it's not good for the human being to be lonely. It's a primary sacred text, right? Of, of the Western tradition, right? Rooted in, in Genesis 2. It's an incredible text. The actual text reads, tov it's not good for the human being to be alone, but the context of the text suggests it's not alone, it's lonely, right? And so the experience of loneliness is shattering
0: and we deny right. it. Yeah, and, it's, it's, and you've mentioned this before and I think it was one of the very moving parts of Avatar was that instead of saying, I love you, they said, I see you, right. which is... Th- the unique self witnessing the unique self of another. And in that witnessing unique self to unique self, you're accessing the field of love intelligence, love beauty, love desire, because that's what you see. You see the truth and you see the unique right. person before you and you fall in love. Fall yeah. in love is a challenging term, but of course you're in love. You're in you're in love. love. You're you're you're, you're in love with the one you see. It's gorgeous, right? And and now we're
1: back to where we started, which is love is a unique self perception. Yeah. Right. It's not just in the emotion. It's not that love's not an emotion. There's obviously an affect, a deep emotion to love. Right. Right. But the emotion comes from the perception. Right. Because if it's just the emotion, energy and motion, the energy dissipates. But when I, when, when it's a perception, it, it deepens all the time. It deepens all the time. And I, I shared with you once in a different context, you know, I, I think we were, we were not in a, a podcast, but when I shared this, you know, in this, strange meeting with the Dalai Lama where he invited me to Dharamsala and we had a, a fabulous, gorgeous time after he had actually taken something of mine and brought it to Dharamsala with an impish smile and kind of said to me, come to Dharamsala and get it back, which I did. And we had a, we had a gorgeous time and we actually wound up doing this, this gorgeous public dialogue. And the thing he got most excited about and he's literally, I mean, there's a recording of it, I think on my website, someplace it was beautiful, beautiful, you know, in that kind of beautiful mm-hmm. Dalai Lama, childish, you know, adult noble way was this idea that love's not an emotion. It loves a perception. Right? And that loves a unique self-perception because that's so hopeful because if it's an emotion we're 25, it's happening, it's kind of hot, 35, great, then it's gone. But actually if it's a perception, we deepen perception. We can actually cultivate perception. We can cleanse the doors of perception until all we see is the infinite, mm. right? So to love a person is to love their infinite specialness, mm. their unique aubrey and, and the more we talk, I mean, actually, we just spent a week together. We, we spent a lot of time on the phone and studying, but actually I know you better a week later. We, we've been in a house together, right? In yep. the morning, right? I love you so much more than I did a week ago right? It's beautiful, right? It's a unique self-perception. The more we see, we
0: see, we sense the nuance. So it's big. And it's big in relationship too. And one of the things that, you know, I thought was actually the great virtue and a great teacher from my years in a polyamorous relationship was actually, it was the most honest relationship that I was ever in because we didn't have to hide those desires that we had. We didn't have to pretend anything. We could really genuinely be honest about what we wanted because all the things that we wanted, you know, as far as at least the expression of our sexuality were on the table, table. they were on the table. And so there was a real beauty to that. Now there was other ways in which we wouldn't see each other, couldn't see each other, or our jealousy would blind us to the truth. There was all this stuff, but there was something really valuable about that. And when I would share one of the virtuous lessons of this, it was, you don't have to be polyamorous. Of course not. But what I felt like was necessary for you to overcome loneliness was to actually at least share what your desires were and have those desires held by your partner so that you could actually be seen. And without being seen, you're locked in this place where you're never going to actually feel fully loved because your unique self in its totality will never be recognized. And so you'll be perpetually lonely. And th- th- that is gorgeous and important. I'm going to take issue with you, but not
1: really take issue with you. I'm just going to play for a second. Um, but you actually have to be polyamorous. Right? There's actually a moral obligation. I want to state it here clearly. There's a moral obligation to be polyamorous. Anyone who's not polyamorous is in violation of their true nature. Mm. Now, I don't mean sexually polyamorous. Yep. Right? Right? Because actually God's polyamorous. Right? Let's be clear. Right? And, and what religions tried to say in the medieval period is, God's monogamous with me. that was the point of the great religions. God's monogamous. God only loves me, my people. God doesn't love your people. God loves only my people. So in other words, monotheism in its classical forms or, you know, kind of Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism made the same claim as kind of classical monotheisms did, right? Now, Buddhism said reality, shunyata, the ground of being, only loves this particular form of Tibetan Buddhism, right? And Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Right, Sufism, as, as noble as it was and as much roomy as we read, right, made a similar claim, right? God loves only me. That was the tragedy of the medieval period. Mm. It was rivalrous conflict governed by win lose metrics, but not between individuals, but between religions. God loves only me. Whoa, let's slow <laughs> down, right? Slow down. It's like a big fucking deal. Yeah. So God's polyamorous. Let's start there. God's polyamorous. God only, not only loves, right, every human being and, and every being. Right, God not only is the love that suffuses all reality that holds all reality, right? But 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 God also, in the image of the interior sciences, is fucking everyone, mm. meaning right. Meaning divinity is interested in intimate communion with you, right? The, the, the actual language of the text is called mit Ave," right? Divinity lusts—that's the precise translation. Divinity lusts, right? La dirato to make his/her dwelling place but tachtonim in your lower places.
0: Hmm.
1: What a text, right? So there's there's this great urge of divinity to erotically merge, and that's called zivug ima the erotic union with the divine, with she, right? So this is pointing towards, right? and, And here's the deal. Divinity is not just urging, right? Not just moved by this urge, this divine urgency to merge with Aubrey. Sorry about this, but God wants to fuck me too. Right? Mm-hmm. right and n k k and Lady Vi and Christian, I don't know if you know this, but God wants to fuck you, man, okay, <laughs> just letting you know, Ryan, just be looking out there, right, right, <laughs> but right, but a I minute, mean, but it's exactly right, God wants to fuck me open and love me open yeah. right and and wants my merger with he she it, which is me merging with my highest self and my highest self is part of this larger field of self with a capital s, so God's polyamorous now, let's stay with this for a second. It's kind of beautiful, so. In the classical traditions, the injunction is matatio dei," be like God. Well, you got it right. Mm -hmm. If God's polyamorous, then then I should be polyamorous, but but not per se sexually. Is that right? And we exile eros into the sexual. Yeah. No, no. Be erotically polyamorous, and what I mean by that is, is fall in love. I'm not saying fall romantically in love, but if you exile your experience of loving. Like to one person, you only love one person, then you're actually dead already. You know, when I was 17, I was madly in love with D.H. Lawrence. I just like madly in love. And he wrote Lady Lover*, Lovers, the famous book, but I wrote another book called Sons and Lovers. See, a, a gorgeous book. And, and one of the, the protagonists says to his potential beloved, he said, I can only be with you if when I love you, you're, you're not a wall and my love stops there right? I've got to be able to, through you, love all of reality. It's very beautiful, right? And I want to be for KK. I want to be, right, the transparent person. I want her to love me personally and uniquely and completely, right? And I want, through me, she's able to love lots of people, not in the same way, not with the same quality, right? There's a monogamy between us, so, KK and I have a monogamous polyamory, and I'm not talking about sexuality. I'm talking about, right, we both love a lot of people, but there's a unique quality to our love. There's a unique commitment, right? We sleep in the same bed, right? We have shared bank accounts. We're committed to each other's unique self in a particular way. We have an emotional intimacy of a particular kind, right? So there's a monogamous polyamory, but, but do not trust anyone, right, to love you who's not polyamorous. And again, by polyamorous, I mean, right, a kind of a po- polyamorous. I love more than one person. And we have to fall in love with each other.
0: And this is one of these frameworks that that needs to actually be given life and light. Right. Because otherwise, when you're told a different story, then that leaves room for jealousy.
1: Anthropologically, I become- feel what's wrong with me? Why am I, why am I loving more than
0: one person? Right. And also if your partner is, whether that's even, it could even, or even your friends, like people get jealous of friendships when friendships blossom and there's a particular strong season of allurement with a new friend, friendships can even get jealous, totally. you know, so it's not just and your lovers. Par- your
1: partner can say, why are you paying so much attention to that friend? Yeah, that, that's totally. It, because there's a sense of scarcity because let's stay close for a second, it's Gorgeous. Because we experience love as being ordinary love, and, and maybe this is worth worth a second. It's worth a billion years. This is what you and I were talking about the other day. We were we were hanging out, you know, deep inside studying. And we we're talking about the exile of love, right? So there's this 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 sixfold exile of love. We take love from the cosmic, outrageous love or eros that inheres in reality, and we exile to the human realm. Exile one. Exile two. We exile it only to the human realm of emotion. It's a particular emotion, right? Exile three, it's the emotion of infatuation, right? Exile four, it's infatuation, which yields a particular kind of fuck that that looks a particular way, exile four. Exile five, that's gotta be only with one particular person in your entire life, if it's true love. And exile six, and it's gotta last and look that way your entire life. We've just destroyed culture. Welcome to the destruction of culture. We've just done it. (laughs) It's unbelievable, right? (laughs) So we have to liberate the experience of loving. No, actually, love's not just ordinary love. And if it's ordinary love, it's a a human strategy. So then there's not a lot to go around because all that love is just me and there's so much love in me. And if I give some of it to somebody else, right, there's the sense of scarcity. But if it's outrageous love, if it's Eros, I'm actually part of the field of Eros. In reality, that's moving through me. There's a lot more of that to go around. And it's not just an emotion, it's a perception. And if love is a perception is, I got to fall in love with Aubrey. Yeah. And I, and, right, and I, I couldn't be alive if I couldn't do that. And when do you feel most alive? When you fell in love. So imagine you fell in love only once, a person fell in love once, you know, for about six weeks, right, in their life, if it lasted that long, right? And if they had six weeks of falling in love with one person, and the entire rest of their life, culture tells them never fall in love again. And that's your maximal aliveness. It means you've got six weeks (laughs) of 80 years or nine of your maximal aliveness. And the entire rest of the time, you're in dead in place. That's a collapse of Eros, right? The collapse of Eros leads to the collapse of ethics. That's what we've struggled. We've got to literally resource, evolve the source code out of culture itself.
0: Now, let's say someone's just listening to this. and We haven't done this very much in these dialogues, but I think this is a worthy place. Let's say someone is deeply moved and inspired by this discussion, and it makes perfect sense, which is actually one of the impetuses for my polyamory journey is this understanding of the way that God loves, the way that the sun does not choose, oh, I love this tree, but not this tree. I'm only going to give my love there. And I was using the sun as a metaphor for the divine at that point. And I just understood that there was something about the divine nature of love that I wanted to actually model in my own, in my own nature of love, and of course, there are my vital, carnal, primal, feral—you know—hairy desires. Vital, carnal, primal, feral, hairy. I got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Th- those desires. I got it. I got it. I those got desires it. Those. are there too. <laughs> right. But if somebody's inspired by this, but either they, you know, if in an, in an honest assessment, you don't have to raise your hand or anything, but in an honest assessment know that they find themselves jealous when their sworn monogamous eros partner is finding a, a kind of allurement or a love with somebody else, or they're in a partnership, conversely, where their desire to love, even if it doesn't involve sexuality, and I think we should actually exclude sexuality from the yeah. table here for That's this right. For we're, this t- we're talking about polyamorous, but people wanna, loving big. If people want to move into this, what are what are some of the practices? What is the what is the yoga that we can step into that can help open this up so that we can kind of loosen the the vice grip that these ideas that are destroying culture have on us. Yeah, no that's great.
1: I mean what we're saying is we're saying is our love lists are too short. Right. Right. We we need to be enlivened by the experience of falling in love. Right. How do we do it in a way that can actually not shatter our containers right? How do we find our way in? And and so I think first we just have to practice loving, okay? And and the first practice of loving is to actually insert a wedge of awareness. So I'm sitting and eating. This is going to sound silly, but it's a beautiful tantric and it's beautiful. I'm eating. The food's delicious. I barely notice I'm eating it. Because let me stop for a second. Let me notice the taste. My favorite food, let me fall in love with the food. Just start there. Second. Right, I see something wildly beautiful, right? A gorgeous tree. I want to fall in love with the tree, right? Meaning when I, falling in love means I, love is a perception. So it's not, I'm getting an entangled emotional relationship with the tree, but I perceive the divinity in the tree. So now that you get the love is a unique self-perception, you actually get, oh, so now I see this unique tree that's unlike any other, and it just blows my heart open. So now I'm training myself in loving. You see, our training in loving is that loving means we fall in love. Right, our general move is kind of either love, fuck, trust, or fuck, love, trust. Unclear which way it goes. Usually, it's fuck, love, trust. A bad order. You should go trust, love, fuck. Mm. Different conversation. But but we associate when you say falling in love, you associate that with the U-Haul, right? In other words, t- mm. we fell in love. We 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 shared our assets. We forgot to do the prenup, right? And Here we are living together, and this is my one and only. That's not what falling in love means. So we have to retool and reclaim the language of falling in love, right? I fall in love with an idea when I perceive the divinity and the gorgeousness of an idea, When right? I fall in love with a tree. I fall in love with food. I fall in love with a place, right? I fall in love with an animal. Now, now that I'm training falling in love, now I'm getting really well trained. Now I can meet you and fall in love, right? And I can fall in love and it means, doesn't mean we're going to sleep together, right? It's, it's not a sexual issue. It's an erotic issue right? And I actually fall in love with your divinity, with your beauty, right? You know, and I kneel and I kiss the ground and I'm in devotion to you and I'm delighted by you and I let you delight me, right? And I'm perceiving and seeing. And when you look in my face, you see your unique beauty. That's what it means, right? When, when I'm in love with you, you look in my face and you're blown away by your own beauty, right? That is how you create a society. And here's the thing. We're not going to take care of each other if we're not in love with each other. You know, the environmentalists, you know, thought we can actually show people that they're going to die if we don't take care of the environment and they're going to take care of the environment. That's not true. You you can't get a person, even for their own utilitarian, unless it's like happening tomorrow, if there's any split off in time, if there's any temporal split, people have temporal myopia. People can't see past a very, very short amount of time. So if you tell people, if you fuck the environment, you know, in X amount of years, it's going to get fucked. They're not going to do anything the only way you can create actually a kind of love of the environment is to fall in love with it. We don't fall in love with reality. We won't create a successful environmental movement. Can't be done on utilitarian grounds, right? Existential risk, the death of humanity. If we don't fall in love with each other, the existential risk to the present, if we don't fall in love with the future, right? So I spend, you know, and maybe this is too much of a confession to share on a, a public podcast, right? But but I spend a decent amount of my time meditating on unborn children, right? So when I meditate, I'm meditating on the unborn Mm -hmm. so I can actually have a shared identity with the future. Intimacy equals shared identity. I want to be intimate with the future. And I I want to feel the unborn calling to me. I want to fall in love with the unborn, right? Because otherwise I can't work with existential risk. So I've got to cultivate my capacity, the great work of becoming a lover. Mm -hmm. And if reality is Eros equals outrageous love, then I, I have to become an outrageous lover. And it's outrageous to be a lover. So we've got to actually train in loving. i just give you a, one other yoga, just a direct yoga, right? So there's a practice. And, and I know, again, this is, you know, I apologize, you know, friends, you know, listeners, you know, this is another promissory note, right? That, you know, we're going to do a, a deep dive dialogue on what outrageous love is and the practices of outrageous love. But one practice of this Eros moving through this outrageous love, which is not ordinary love human, it's the cosmic love moving uniquely through me. is what we call the practice of writing outrageous love letters. So in, you know, at the think tank and in the kind of group of friends and colleagues and students, you know, that 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 is involved in this kind of great writing of the new story, we write each other outrageous love letters, right? And, and and when you write an outrageous love letter, you exaggerate till you're accurate. And, and and actually, even without calling it by that practice, you and I actually fell into that practice, mm-hmm. you know, naturally, right? And so I'll often write you a note and say, "Hey, my love," and what do I mean? Do I mean that I'm competing with Vilana or that you're competing with Christina? No, but saying, "Hey, buddy," actually not how I feel, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't right, right? And actually something relaxes in my field. go, like, oh, I'm reaching out to Ab. Right? Wow, that's great. Yeah. Right? And something something happens there and you can literally feel in the text, you can feel the transmission of it. And if it's somehow off or rushed, you feel that also. It's all, right? You can feel the whole thing. So we actually developed a formal practice, which is called the writing of outrageous love letters, which are written not between sexual beloveds. You can, you know, I write out. Well, it out. could be. It it's totally could be. It's beautiful between sexual beloveds. It's not limited to sexual beloveds. Mm-hmm. So I write and receive, you know, sometimes a couple of dozen outrageous love letters in a day, right? Every single day. Now they're not letters. They're usually a note, a couple of, couple of words, but just back and forth, right? With a whole circle of people, with men, with women, with small mammals. I mean, just try <laughs> right? Right. But it's a practice. It's the practice of writing outrageous love letters, which is the practice of the song of Solomon which is the most sacred text in the canon, which is actually, when you read the song, actually, it's not an essay on love, not a Western essay, it's not a koan, it's a series of outrageous love notes between a lover and beloved. And that book is called Kodesh Kodeshim, The Holy of Holies. Mm. So that's the practice of writing outrageous love notes is the practice of Song of Songs. And it's the yoga of polyamory, but not yoga of sexual polyamory, but of loving wide and loving big. Our love lists are too short. We can't engage existential risk without longer love lists. Amen. 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 And you got to take a unique risk to do that.
0: Oh, the segue. Oh, the, the segue. segue. Oh, I didn't know the how segue. you were going to get there. Oh, the segue. But it worked. <laughs> but it worked, right?
1: So unique risk. Fuck, unique risk is a big one. So here's the sentence. You can't realize your unique self, which is the purpose of human life. Not because we declare it to be so, but because the inherent movement of cosmos is towards uniqueness. We go through all of the steps of reality until we get to the human level. We go through all the levels of human development. We get to where we are today, and we have this new realization of unique self. So just, just to say that, the realization of unique self is new, right? I'm a unique expression of the evolutionary impulse. I can feel and see the whole evolutionary story, and I'm now an expression of conscious evolution. I'm aware of the whole evolutionary story, and I actually know and feel that the evolutionary impulse is awake and alive in me. I have a unique gift to give. The love, desire, and love, intelligence, and love, beauty of all realities are moving through me, right? I'm here to live, realize my unique self, give my unique gift, and, and be my unique self. It's not just my unique gift. It's actually... The unique quality of my being, which is a gift by itself. That's the purpose of my life. To do that, I have to take my unique risk. It, there's no possible way to do that without taking a unique risk. and anyone who thinks they're just going to glide into it doesn't work that way. Mm. right? It, it's kind of the cosmic you know principle, you know, applied to unique self of kind of the old no pain, no gain. right? There's always a unique risk. and being willing. To take
0: my unique risk is everything. I've been using a lot of Game of Thrones references because I'm watching it with Vi. And there's something that just came to mind that I think people who are also Game of Thrones heads like, like myself, there's this idea in the Iron Islands, the Greyjoys who run the Iron Islands, that you pay the salt price for anything that's worth it. And the mm. salt price is like you don't wear jewelry. You don't go to the jeweler and buy jewelry because your family had money, and then you just buy jewelry. If you have jewelry, it's because you. And again, they had a whole different culture, like a Viking culture of raiding and reaping, and you know, and fighting. But you take it off the slain enemy, you know, and then, and then you get to put it on your bike. That's paying the salt right salt price because you took the unique risk to actually risk your blood and your life to have earned it. And it's like you pay the salt price. And in some ways, it's a pre-personal idea about about what this is, which really means to actually get what is of true value, you have to put your blood on the line. You have have to to pay the salt price. You have to pay the salt
1: price. And let's just put the two together now. But you only want to pay the salt price for your unique risk. Right. So risk is not unique risk. So often we risk for something which wants to give us a sense of pseudo-eros, wants to give us separate self-status and ego. We take wild risks for that. I only want to take that level of risk where I'm willing to literally risk my life for the sake of my unique self. Yeah. Right? You know, for this and my unique self might be in service, it might be in devotion, it's it's in love, it's in creativity, but I'm gonna lay my life down. Right, whether that's figuratively and sometimes literally, but 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 we we hope not to die for it, we hope to live for it, right? For my for my unique self. And that's it's like, because you can't get there without it. And here's the funny thing: it's not actually really a risk because my entire life force comes from my unique self. So if I don't do that, I'm gonna die. I'll be deadened, I'll die, I'll go into depression, I'll go into breakdown right? I'll go into a sense of what Steiner called ennui, this kind of sense of kind of sick deadness. Kierkegaard called it a sickness unto death, right? This, the sense of malaise, right? So not to take my unique risk is insanity, but I've got to be willing to take it and to identify, is that my unique risk, right? I mean, that's, that's a very, very big deal. You know, there's a, uh, I'm thinking about, I mean, let us an example. Here's, a, here's an example. And maybe, I mean, we can, we can, I'm sure both come up with five of them, but let me just, the first one that comes to mind, you know, we were talking about this the other day, back in 2014, I'm um, with my dear friend, actually, who's, you know, local Austin boy, John Mackey. We, we ran something called the Success Summit. It was great. This is really beautiful. And the book hasn't yet been written. We did one book out of it, but it's about this new vision of success, different dialogue, different conversation. And it was a great thing to do. And there were a thousand people there. And there was art and beauty and love and creation and creativity. And in a certain sense, it wasn't exactly what I should have been doing. Mm. And as I did that, because I thought it was less risky than writing, I I did it because I loved it. But, you know, underneath the loved it and underneath the beauty of it and underneath the you know, the, the, you know, and I ran it with my friend, Mike Beckwith, Michael, you know, from Agape and we, it was gorgeous, but like underneath, if I get like, you had to get really quiet, really, really quiet. If I would go really, really deep, 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 all I say, oh, I should write a phenomenology of Eros and I should write about kind of revisioning sexuality, but wow, I've dealt with a little controversy around that shit. I'm a little tired. Mm. Let's talk about success. That's a kosher topic, you know, mainstream kosher topic. And let me do that. Right? So in a certain sense at that moment, I wasn't willing to take my unique risk because, and I'm, she's madly blessed me. I'm, I, I feel alive and, and I have more energy than I know what to do with. And when Mark says she, he's referring to Shekhinah, Shekhinah, Eros, the field of Eros, Mm -hmm. she. And yet there was a part of me, a hidden part of me. I couldn't even identify that was tired. It's like, really, I'm going to write a phenomenology of Eros. Are you for real? Right. You know, and I was, I'll change culture and I'll also get, you know, murder of Eros and get, you know, crucified. I mean, how many times can you get crucified? Let's let's only one time in a lifetime. (laughs) And so, so I, I didn't do it. So I didn't take my unique risk. And of course, what happened is out of that success summit, I actually had to deal with a another tragedy that actually emerged from it that we dealt with. And it was, you know, a, a effective and we, we were able to transform it, but it was, you know, a direct result in, in my own self-understanding. No one else could tell me it. if someone else would tell me that I'd tell them to go fuck off. Mm. Don't tell me why that happened. That's, bull, you know, spiritual bullshit, mm-hmm. but you can say it to yourself, right? It was like, wow, I didn't take my unique risk. Now here's the thing. No one can tell you what your unique risk is there's no spiritual teacher, there's no psychologist, there's no guru, right? That comes from your own intimacy with yourself. That's bearer, right? That word that you and I have used so often, which comes from the lineage, the clarification of risk, the clarification of desire. What's your unique risk? So to be
0: a human being is to know your unique risk. Mm. If you don't take it, you're already dead. And I think one thing to double click on here just quickly is, you know, my, one of my, you know, former teachers, Maestro Hamilton Souther, he said one thing that's very simple and very self-evident, but he said, when you're actually dealing with challenging aspects of what you may encounter in the astral and how to integrate those aspects and how to actually, and it applies to life as well, it's like energy levels matter. And in this moment, actually it was, and there's another, from a sports perspective, you know, my old boxing coach, Rudy Vasquez, would say, fatigue makes cowards of us all. Meaning that, nice. you know, there's nice. a point at which yeah. when you run out of energy, right. actually you're not willing to take your unique risk because pain increases the more energy you push when you're already tired. And, and you actually step back from it. And that's actually when you get your ass kicked. Right. You know, so what he was saying is you you to allow that moment to happen, you're going to get cornered in the ring and you're going to get pounded until you drop to the canvas. Like this is what happens. You just take way more damage or in, you know, on the other side, this is in your example, it's where some gnarly things happen. So being aware of your energy and then sustaining your energy, trying to build your, your life force, your vitality through lots of ways in which you're expressing in life, but also like the reason I wrote own the day, own your life, was to create an arc of an entire day that could actually support your vital energy because actually that matters for the whole picture. And to ignore that would be to be a little bit foolish, to say that I'm going to act exactly the same when I'm full of energy and vital life force as I'm gonna act when I'm exhausted on two hours of sleep tired, coming off of right. seven days of Burning Man where I've depleted my serotonin systems. Right, Energy levels matter. matter. They fucking matter. They matter. They matter. And,
1: I mean, this action, we'll come back to unique risks. That's, y- you wound us around there into energy levels, which is critical. You're absolutely right. And that sense of kind of the imperceptible sense of being tired. Yeah. Right. And, and you know, tiredness for me is thing, I didn't even know what tiredness was. And the notion <laughs> that I could be tired but it was just that fatigue and I love that. Give me that fatigue statement again. Fatigue makes cowards of us all. It's fantastic. Yeah, Fatigue makes cowards of us all. So joy, joy's got a big player in, in it. Not happiness, not happiness, but joy. You know, joy in the lineage is associated, you know, in what's called in the lineage, the Hebrew wisdom lineage, what's called the tree of life, which has 10 qualities. Sifirot. They're called qualities or illuminations of reality or illuminations of the divine. And one of those Sifirot is called Bina. And Bina is kind of intuitive wisdom. And Bina is associated, the kind of energy of Bina is associated with joy. So Bina is the higher she, the higher Shekhinah, the higher eros. She's called the higher eros. There's kind of a lower lower she and a higher she, the higher she's called Bina. She's the, 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 the kind of raw Eros of cosmos and she's joy, right? She's associated Mm -hmm. with joy. So joy is an energy. Now this gets really beautiful. So remember our image that we talked about maybe two hours ago, however long we're in here, we talked about an electric cord. Everyone's got the same electric cords, your sameness. Then you got the plug at the end of the cord. That's your unique self. It plugs into, as it were, the circuit of reality. And you're filled with energy, meaning there's not generic energy. There's unique energy. Mm. That's a very big deal. So Aubrey's energy can only come through his unique self. Now let's, let's now get to joy. So where's joy come from? So constitution founding document, America pledge allegiance to the flag, born in the USA, right? right? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So life, good value, liberty. I'm all about liberty, right? We're all, uh, liberty's really important. Not just freedom from, but freedom for something, right? so real freedom. Pursuit of happiness, pursuit of joy is a crock. Right? That one, they got that one wrong. You can't pursue happiness. You can't pursue joy. That is a, a categorical human error, and the entire self-help movement is it, you know, is, is, is about that error. So you don't, you don't disambiguate happiness and joy. Well, let's, let's, for now, I'm going to lump them. Right. And right? you just wanted to use the word disambiguate. And I know that, which, is, <laughs> which, is, which, is, which I get that I, I'm in, I'm in, Yeah, yeah. I'm no, in, it's uh, worth it. Right. Yeah, for sure. It's such a fucking good word, isn't it? Uh-huh. Right. Just I'm not splitting. I'm not disambiguating for the moment, happiness and joy. I'm using them the way the founders, you know, use them as kind of generally the same thing. Correct. Mm-hmm. Right. For the, for the, for the, for the present. So life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, life, good, liberty, good, pursuit of happiness is a crock. Why? Because when you pursue happiness, it runs in the opposite direction. It's just a rule, right? You try and be happy. There's there's a story, right, about a um a, a master whose student says, you know, you told me that you can't pursue happiness. You know, kind of this is a, a loose translation from, you know, Aramaic, Yiddish, Hebrew. And he said, so I always ran away from happiness and and happiness never came and found me. He said, "Well, you were running away, but you were always looking behind you to see if happiness was following. So, (laughs) happiness was confused about which way you were going, right? Right? But but the point is, you can't pursue happiness. So, so well, how do you get joy? How do you get happiness? And yes, I'm using them together now for a second. So, so the way you get joy, you get to joy, you get to happiness by pursuing something other than happiness, and as a natural byproduct of that other pursuit, you get joy. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, what's that other thing that you pursue?" The other thing you're pursuing, I had an argument with my colleague then, Dennis Prager, right? Dennis and I did a a conversation, I think, on his show about this. And Dennis said, well, you pursue, you know, ethics and goodness. And as a byproduct of pursuing ethics and goodness, you get joy. No, that's not true. Ethics and goodness are are good things to pursue, but you will not get joy just as a byproduct of pursuing ethics and joy. You've got to pursue your unique ethics, Mm. your unique self, your unique goodness. In other words, joy is a byproduct of living your unique self. That's a big deal. Meaning there can be ups and there can be downs. There's going to be agony and ecstasy. There can be crisis, right? There can be breakdowns and breakthroughs. But when you're in your story, when you're living your story, right? When you're doing that, right? Joy is a byproduct of living your story. It's a byproduct and your story is your unique self. Joy is a direct byproduct of living your unique self story. Now, that means that if joy is energy, right? Because joy is understood in the lineage correctly as being actually a current of energy, you know, in Hebrew it's ch C-H-I-Y-U-T, chiyut, raw energy, which is similar to chi, right? In the Chinese system, the chi, right? The energy of cosmos. So my joy, my joy, right, is actually a function of my unique self, right? And as I get joy, as a byproduct of living my unique self because that plug at the end of that cord is my unique self. So I plug in my unique self, right? That is my access, my conduit to joy. There's no other conduit to joy. So the precise extent. I mean, it's a directly proportional relationship, right? That I'm not living my unique self. So if someone tells me, I don't have energy, I can't, I can't find my joy. I know they're not living their unique self. So then I talk to them not about how to get more energy, I talk to them about their unique self. And we can almost always correlate the two. Okay. If you were doing more of that, so people only do less, so I'll have more energy, no, do more, but do more of your unique self. That's where, that's where energy comes from. That's really beautiful. And you correlate it and say, you can't take your unique risk. You can't know what your unique risk is unless you're awake. I mean, awake on all levels. You you got energy. I mean, what, what, if, if I asked you what your unique risk was, what would it be? That's
0: a very personal question, Mark. <laughs> that's a very personal question that I don't think I'm quite prepared to answer in public. But it is, it just to say... That is you know, a personal this, question. I apologize. <laughs> that's all right. I I'm, and I'm very transparent here. I mean, I think it's actually the embodiment of the possibility of what my consciousness uniquely can hold. The the frequency that my consciousness can uniquely hold. and And my unique risk is the feeling that I think comes from the same lineage that you're from, which is if you actually step into the full breadth of your aliveness and consciousness, you get fucking nailed and you get the spear and you get the crucifix. And this is what happens if you step into your full aliveness. So keep the lights down on the dimmer just Just a little bit, just enough that you're safe. And I think really it's, And this doesn't mean I'm trying to be fucking Jesus or something. It's just about turning my lights all the way up, all the way up. And I think the unique risk is, do I trust to turn my own unique Aubrey light all the way up? Can I crank it to the maximum? Yeah. And that's, you know, one aspect of my unique risk. Another is there's certain topics that I'd like to talk about maybe Certain aspects, like, you know, I write, I've shared this, I write erotic fiction. Some part of me kind of wants to share it, but it's like, I don't know. I mean, does that really make sense? You know, so so there's little other elements of things that I, that I kind of want to do that feel risky and edgy. Yeah. And so that, so there's a couple different components, but it's a, it's a beautiful question and it's an intimate question. Yeah, it's an imminent question. So
1: first off, I, I apologize insincerely right? <laughs> <laughs> but for asking it. And I super appreciate it. It was a really beautiful answer, right? Um, and 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 I I share both of those with you, right? In other words, you know, the murder of Eros is a real thing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, at the end of the Return to Eros book that we wrote, I wrote with KK, we we wrote a chapter on the murder of Eros. And as I went through, you know, a bunch of years ago this, you know, this tragedy moment, you know, my response you know, was to sit with Christine and to write this book, Return to Eros, because I had kind of turned away from Eros in a certain way. I'd done the success summit and I realized I gotta, I've got to go back to she and actually write about her. That's what she wants. So I, I wrote Return to Eros. And at the end, we wrote this very poignant chapter and poignant for us anyways, right? About the murder of Eros, right? In other words, there is a, you know, and Reich talks about it. You know, Reich calls it, he wrote a book by this name, Wilhelm Reich. He wrote a book called The Murder of Christ. It doesn't mean Christ, just like you said, I don't, I don't mean to be Jesus, but it, by Christ, he meant the same thing you meant by Jesus, the fullness of life force. Yeah. And Reich talks about the desire to murder life force, that he calls the murder of Christ. You know, we, we call it the murder of Eros, right? There's a desire to murder Eros because when someone's embodying Eros, it reminds me of that which I'm not embodying. And Reich wrote a second book called Listen, Little Man, <laughs> right, which was about you know, this, this, the little man or this desire, right? To murder Eros, where I'm not in, I'm not on the inside. I'm not inside my circle of Eros. So I place someone else on the, on the outside and go to kill them, right? In order to give myself the illusion of being on the inside. So, you know, that, that sense of, wow, do I let auburness shine all the way? And there's no, right? And, and no one can answer that question, right? If anyone would ever attempt to answer that question for you or for me, they can't do that. They can advise, right. they can share. But in the end, right, there's this very deep resonance of what does that mean? And it's a very unique, particular, gorgeous, it's called in the lineage, Prate Divrei Torah, the individual revelation to opriness, right? That revelation, that illumination, right? How far do I go, right? What do I share? You know, there's a, a practice we have in the, of Outrageous Love Letters, And there's a practice we have of outrageous erotic love letters, right? So outrageous erotic love letters is a very, very beautiful practice. Christine and I, I did that practice for, you know, years. And in in the circle, there's a particular track, this practice of outrageous erotic love letters that people have written. And they're intensely beautiful. I mean, they're elegant. They're sacred, right? And there was a movement at a certain moment. let's, Let's publish them all. The world needs them. And it was like, well, maybe not. Right. Mm. in other words, you know, is, is that a unique risk? And, and I thought actually at the time that it was and thought, well, maybe it's not. Yeah. So, right. You know what I mean? In other words, so it's a, you actually have to wrestle with this and you have to be willing to be in the cauldron and the wrestling of where are you going to drive your stake in the ground? Right. And you drive your stake into the ground for your unique risk. and, and sometimes there's different moments in life. Sometimes I, it's just a risk. And some some right that's a, and some's just a risk right because that's why it's called a unique risk right right and I'm not going to give give you one last example or will I that's the unique risk right <laughs> right no, there's this, so, right unique risk whether I should share with you this unique risk right <laughs> so it's it's back and I'm, I it's back I'm 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 living in the Middle East at the time and someone's coming to Israel who who wants to be in a relationship. And, you know, calls me and calls a very close friend of mine and, you know, completely appropriate, you know, above board, you know, in all, in all the good ways. And something in my body said, like, ah, oh, like, can I trust this person? And so I, I called the person. We had, I can remember the conversation today. And I said, whatever the name was, I said, hey, like, this is a totally legitimate, beautiful, you know, great, you know. Um, she was studying with me. And she wanted to have a relationship. I had her talk to, you know, the, the, you know, a woman I was very close to kind of was kind of holding a lot of my world and they had a great talk and, you know, it was done in, in like such integrity, you know, and I said, can I trust you? We wound up going out for six weeks. You know, that was it. It was a short period of time. I said, can I trust you? And my body told me not to. And I thought, you know what? This is my unique risk. I'm supposed, I want to be a trusting person. And I don't want to let the experience of having been betrayed, right, violate my ability to trust. That's, that's what I told myself. And I trusted the person and it was a mistake. Mm. You know, let the hint be sufficient to the wise, right? And so I, w- I thought that was my unique risk and it wasn't. Yeah. I actually should have listened to the murmurings of my body, right? And so unique risk is a very personal, intimate conversation, but it's one that no person who wants to live the fullness of their unique self can avoid having. There is a unique risk to live my unique self. And if, if it's not there, then it's not your unique self. Yeah. And it's the, it's the pathway to your unique gift. And, and it is the pathway. It's the pathway to your unique gift, which the world desperately needs, which the world desperately needs. And, and maybe, you know, as, as we move towards closure, you know, that, that, that realization, when we kind of go back to the beginning of what we said, Right? It's like, wow. Right. You're an irreducibly unique expression of the love intelligence and love beauty and love desire that needs your service. The experience of being needed is the most wondrous human experience. Right? We're not at home in the world. We don't feel welcome in the world until we're needed. Mm -hmm. And and really, and this is it's a, a conversation which I think is also about our second of the three great questions of cosmoronic humanism, which is where are you Am I am I in a world that welcomes me? Are there welcome signs in the universe? So we'll get to that conversation, but maybe just for a moment now, you can't be welcome in the universe if you're not living your unique self. Mm -hmm. When you're living your unique self, you have an, your unique self is a welcome sign tacked onto right. The doorway of your life. If you're not living your unique self, your essential experience of being alive is you're not quite welcome. You're, you're like a guest who, who, who reality is putting up with. And it, it's kind of like, you know, you go to someone's house and they, they try and make you, you know, totally welcome. And, you know, you do your best and you're there and, you know, everyone's good. And you're sitting at the table, but you, you kind of want to get home. But then you're sitting at the table and let's say something happens and they, they pick up the phone and, you know, the, the person or the man or the one picks up the phone and, wow, something went wrong. And they turn to, you, oh my God, I'm so glad you're here. You're the one person who can deal with this for me. Like, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. You're welcome the whole sense of alienation's gone you're welcome so unique self gives me the experience
0: that I'm welcome in reality doesn't get better than that well yeah and and it's it's actually exhausting to give something that's like repetitively that's not your unique gift or unique obligation you know so for example as you know we're both teachers and in teaching when someone is really accessing, or podcasting even, when I'm when I'm a guest on another podcast, when they're accessing some of my unique gift, it's enlivening. It's energizing. Yeah. But if I hear one more motherfucking time, so tell me why you started on it. Right. <laughs> I feel my energy draining out of my body at fucking rapid pace, like right. a stampede of energy buffalo going the wrong oh fucking God. way. I'm like, oh my God, I've answered right. this. 300 fucking times, you really right. want me to answer this motherfucker right. again? Right. Like, oh, okay. Oh oh here we go. You know, and same thing with like somebody who's asking a question that's I can answer some way, but not even answer anywhere close to as good as myriad other people could answer. Then it's it takes energy from me. But when somebody asks me a question that specifically I can answer, you know, like say some... <laughs> some interesting interweaving between polyamory and psychedelics or some particular thing that I have particular insight about or the, the darkness retreat com- contrasted with the boga or some. And I'm like, ah, that's a fucking good question. And those are obviously extreme examples of my unique genius coming together. But in those questions, like energy actually is filled into my body and it's this it's this beautiful thing that happens and it's gorgeous right uniqueness is the conduit of energy right right it just is and that's why also when somebody asks you when your friend asks you like hey can you help me move my house it's like oh god because you know there's thousands of people who could move the house like picking up furniture packing boxes there's no you you're not uniquely capable of doing that you may do it because you're a good friend but it's not going to be energizing but if they're like can you walk me through this difficult integration i'm talking to me personally and yeah, no, i got me through this difficult integration process after i had this strange dmt experience and i'm looking around like yeah all right i'm there when do you need me now okay cool i cancel my shit i'm there and i'm, I'm there. actually happy to be there Right. You know, and that's the, and I and, think that's a, an important distinction. No, it's a
1: great, it's a great distinction. And of
0: course, and this is self evident in what you said, but of course,
1: there's particular moments when someone you love dearly is moving their house. Yeah. Right. And, and that, that, but that becomes unique, not because of the action, but because of the relationship. Yep. And, and there's one, you know, it's, it's gorgeous. There's one last thing that, that maybe is worth saying. It's very subtle. It's very beautiful. Which is that unique self implies something about the nature of who you are, and and this is connected to kind of where are you in a certain ways and, and what do you want, but, but just this piece of it is key for unique self, which is unique self implies that you're intended. It's a very big, subtle, gorgeous realization that you can actually get in your body that just kind of wakes you up. In other words, my uniqueness tells me that I'm not like any other, and that actually it took cosmos an enormous amount of effort, right, through generations of allurement, and allurement's a precise language of cosmic intelligence to generate me, And, and there's no one that ever was, is, or will be that's like me other than me, which means, oh, I'm intended, if I buy my wife a gift, and it's kind of the standard gift, doesn't matter how much costs it's a standard gift that people buy or it's an expensive gift. It's a classical expensive gift. It's okay. It's nice. It's, you know, sweet or she buys it for me or, or right. But if I get, if I have intention and I actually think about it and I think about who she is and, and what she wants. And I, you know, and I, 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 I create it, you know, long in advance right before her birthday. I don't do it. I do it like for six months, I'm intending it. So the deeper your intention, the more specific the intention, the more unique intention, the more love there is. Mm. That's what a human being is. A human being is, is exponentially unique, intended by reality. And the actual experience, as a pointing out instruction for actual enlightenment, that's what we mean by the democratization of enlightenment, we can actually access the enlightened experience. So unique self itself is a pointing out instruction for my own enlightenment. I actually have an experience of reality intending me. It's like, wow, I have an experience of reality choosing me. I have an, right? And what we do is we outsource being chosen to one person. So if if Hmm. we're not chosen by that one person, we're not chosen. And if that person, therefore, you know, didn't remember our birthday far enough in advance, right? They're fucked and we're fucked because we've outsourced our experience of being intended to that one person.
0: Hmm.
1: But actually- in the very structure of my being is I'm intended. When I actually get a sense of my uniqueness, I can actually get a sense right of actually being intended. So I've got to be able to look at myself to get out of myself and look at myself and realize reality intended me. I, for a bunch of years, I asked my students to carry around a mirror. We started it as a bathroom thing. We, 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 we all did it when we're in the airport. You're in the airport, you go into the bathroom. And I know there's lots of things people can do in bathrooms on planes, but this was a different one, right? Which was. There's not that much. It's, it's fucking cramped in there. It's <laughs> what cramped. people right? are doing. There's some limits, right? Yeah. Right. But, but, you know, so I would say to people, and the, the, the way I got to this, the way I got to this this teaching instruction was, it happened to me by accident once. As I go into the, the airport bathroom and I look in the mirror for a second, I'm like, wow, who's that? Now, that doesn't happen in your mirror at home because it's ordinary. You're so used to your mirror at home that there's really, you're just part of your day. But sometimes you go into a different mirror you've never seen and you look and you say, who's that person? And you get this sense of like, wow, who is that? And you can actually see yourself in third person. When you can see yourself in third person, you can actually perceive yourself. You have a sense of perception of self. You can't get it any other way, which is why self-love comes that way. And you can't do self-love by looking at yourself. You can only do self-love by actually doing a practice, which actually lets you look at yourself in third person,
0: right? There's another mirror, you know, really yoga. And when I say yoga, like exercise actually. And I stumbled upon it in my own journeys. One day I was on a particularly, particularly thick dose of psilocybin mushrooms. And I went to the mirror and I was just going to wash my hands after going to the bathroom or something. And I started looking at myself and I had that experience as you've described in the unique self experience of seeing myself through God's eyes as me, through me, seeing, seeing myself looking back. And it was like this really potent experience where I saw all my animality, of course, all the hairs that were bristling out of my body, but also all the light that was pouring through every cell of my being. And I stayed there for a while and a little smile crept on my face. And I was like, Hey, there you are. There you are. There you are. That's Aubrey. It. That's there exactly you it. Are. That's exactly it. Right. Yeah.
1: So yeah, literally that's exactly, exactly that experience. So you actually, you're in the bathroom of the plane, right? And, You look in the mirror you're like, wow, who is that? And you get to fall in love with that person. Mm -hmm. That's called Mm self-love. That's actually what self-love is. I mean, the way I do it, you know, know, and again, just her grace, you know, practices, new yogas emerge spontaneously, is I was working with a a dear friend of mine, right? You know, student and friend who I've worked with for, we've worked together for 10 years and just self-love wasn't working. So what we did is we said, let's put a baby you know, between us on the floor. You know, let's put the baby in a nice place on the floor, kind of nice and, you know, cushy carpets. The baby's comfortable. And I said, okay, whether that baby lives or dies depends on you. Whoa. Depends on me whether that baby lives or dies. Yep. If you love that baby, that baby lives. So I asked her, okay, is that baby alive? Yes. Why is that baby alive? That baby's alive because I'm loving that baby. Okay. Six months old, a year old, that baby alive? Yes. Why is that baby alive? Because I'm loving that baby. And we went through, you know, maybe we must have done it 20 times. Is that baby alive? Yes. Why you're, I'm loving that baby. That baby only lives. I said, I'm the Lord of hosts. I decree that baby only lives if you love that baby. So we went through all the years until we got to her age. And her age was, let's say, 57. I said, okay, now we're at 57. Is that baby alive or dead? Baby's alive. Why is that baby alive? I'm loving that baby. Okay, that baby's name is her name. So the first time, Right. She had this like beautiful, stunning, her whole just came alive and had a direct, clear experience. And Kyle and I just actually did this practice, actually, as, as we were chatting. And it's fantastic, gorgeous practice because you can't love yourself just by going inside. Yeah. because right? you, you, you can't find yourself inside. If I want to access aubreyness, oh, Aubrey, taste of Aubrey good. We talked about this the other day but I can't access myself. So I've got to see myself in third person, which is what happened to you in the journey. Yep. So I actually look at myself and I say, wow, reality intended this. Wow. Right? I, I didn't decide where to be born. I didn't decide how to be born. I didn't decide to who to be born. I didn't decide when to be born. I didn't decide with what capacities to be born. I'm being lived by this larger thing. Reality intended me. I belong here. I'm welcome. Reality chose me. And, and then you get to reality needs me. Right. Right. That's that's the experience of unique self. It's the source of joy. It's the source of of human dignity. And, and it's actually our true nature. And maybe 10 second break. I'm just going to get something I'm to do. Aubrey, I, I grabbed as I walked out, you know, this poem, which um, I love by Walt Whitman. And the crazy thing is that everyone, everyone thinks people say people always send it to me about it's this is a unique self poem, but it's exactly not right? And, and, and maybe this is a great place to close on. Why isn't it? So this is a f- gorgeous Walt Whitman called O Me, O Life. And do you remember that movie? What was it called? It's a great movie, the dead poet society. Mm-hmm. So this was kind of core in the dead poet society where we're ostensibly Robin Williams, we talked about in the beginning. So it's good that we're talking about him at the end. We started with the Robin Williams. We're ending with the Robin Williams. There's actually a text in the book of creation, uh, 2,200, 2200- years old, which says that a great conversation, not with intention, but, but just the nature of things, So fun, the beginning is in the end, and the end is the beginning.
0: Hmm.
1: Right, so the demarcating characteristic of a holy conversation is that somehow weaves together, weaves together, you know, in the beginning and the end. So, so that I'm, that's actually what just happened quite literally. So so dropping Williams, right, is doing this poem actually in Dead Poets Society, but it's a great Whitman poem where he reads, you know, O me, O life of the questions of these recurring, of the endless trains of the faithless, of cities filled with the foolish, of myself forever reproaching myself for who more foolish than I and who more faithless, and of eyes that vainly crave the light of the objects mean, of the struggles ever renewed, of the poor results of all, of the plotting and sordid crowds I see around me, of the empty and useless years of the rest with the rest of me entwined, the question, O oh, me, so sad recurring, what good amid, amid these, O oh, me, oh life? And his response is that you are here, that life exists in identity, that the powerful play goes on, and you may contribute a verse. So on the one hand, it's really beautiful. Mm. And it is, he's intuiting a unique self-consciousness that you may contribute a verse. But here's the thing. And that's where we were so precise in our first dialogue. What, what Whitman is saying is even though it's sorted crowds, and even though it may be over when it's over, and even though it might be a tale told by an idiot full of sounds and fury signifying nothing, okay, but you have an experience of contributing in a verse. That's not what Unique Self is saying. <laughs> unique Self is saying, no, the world is overflowing with meaning, and it's all significant. You've actually realized I'm not. This is that you may contribute a verse, is written to the separate self. Mm-hmm. The separate self is trying to wrest meaning. That, that's not what unique self is. Unique self is the world's filled with meaning. You're actually part of the seamless code of the universe. You're part of the field of consciousness, which is the field of desire, which is the field of value, which is the field of meaning. And you're contributing a verse, not absently, but as an expression of a cosmos overflowing with meaning. So you're not just contributing a verse, you're contributing a verse to the cosmic scroll. It's not the same. It's not a random verse. It's not an existential claim for meaning. And what Robin Williams does beautifully, it's a great movie. What he says to the kids is, in the movie, and, and he uses Whitman poem in that context, he says, in the beginning of the movie, he brings them to see the pictures of the old students who used to be there, who were young in their age, and he says, listen to the whispers. Can you hear them? Can you hear them? It's a very beautiful scene. Yes, but now they're just fertilizing the grass. There's nothing left of them. So what should you do? It brings out the Whitman poem. At least contribute a verse. It's exactly not unique self. Unique self means reality is filled with meaning. You're part, of the field, you're part of the field of meaning. And we need your unique verse. right? As your unique letter in the
0: Torah, Right, your unique verse in the cosmic scroll, unique self. So Christian raised a good question that we thought we would circle back here. And yeah, totally, because I think it's important. The question being, well, f- what if I don't feel like I have a unique self, right? And I think that question arises when you start comparing your what you think is your unique self with somebody else's unique self, which is the exact antithesis of unique self of unique self. Right. I mean, that, that's exactly it. The question is.
1: A question of what matters. You know, there's a, there's a text in the lineage from tractate PSACHIM. That's the name of this tome in page, I think 50A, which tells the story of a near-death experience. It's an early near-death experience. And so the person comes back and they say, what did you see? And he says, I saw a world turned upside down, meaning that which we think matters actually is irrelevant. The great speech, the big public thing, and all of these seemingly innocuous and private moments are actually of unimaginable value. You know, I, I remember uh, reading a book by William Sapphire, who was a New York Times columnist, you know, back in the day, called Great Speeches in History. And they were all about these great public speeches. And I wrote him an angry letter as a kid. I said, why do you think the great speeches in history happen in public? They happen maybe at four in the morning between a person and their partner. They happen, you know, in a business. Yeah. They happen, right? They happen all over the place. So our sense that that which is public, that which is famous, that which is witnessed, which is kind of an early Instagram consciousness.
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah. right? Well right?
1: right. Right. That's actually a devaluation of unique self. It's exactly the opposite of unique self, as you said so beautifully, so correctly. Actually my uniqueness shows up in two ways. First off in my being, my unique self is not just my public unique gift to someone. It's in the way I uniquely show up in reality. That's not my unique becoming. It's not evolution moving through me to do something. It's my very beingness when it's actually authentic. It's clarified. It's really me. There's great joy. And in just me actually being the depth of my authenticity. And second is, my gift is not just that, which is powerful, that which is monetized, right? it's me giving the unique gift of my insight, my presence, you know, it may be me exchanging a word with the teller at the bank. Right. And by the way, it's one of the reasons it's so tragic when you move everything online, because we, we miss lots of unique self encounters, mm. but in all of my encounters, Right, both in the online world and in the personal world, right? Every single encounter is a unique self-invitation. Every single encounter is a place to give a gift. Every single encounter is, is infinitely significant. And there's always a place to create value. Having said that, our political economic obligation is to create maximal opportunity for maximal people to actually. Give the fullness of their unique selves, and it's actually correct that it's tragic in the world where there's an inequity, right, of unique self possibility. There's always unique self possibility in every in the worst, the worst and most horrific time, and you know maybe, and maybe it's a it's a good place to close. It's a story of of a wow. I haven't thought about this in a long time, brother. There's a story that a close friend of mine told that her father used to tell where her father was a, a folk singer and beautiful man and a, and a kind of mystic, you know, lineage thinker. And he told a story of him walking on Hayarkon street, which is the street on the beach in Tel Aviv and running into a, a street sweeper. And the street sweeper was, you know, they started talking and, you know, her father, Shlomo was his name, you know, noticed something about the, his accent, the accent of the street sweeper that seemed to be connected to a, a very important master called the Master from Piasetna who was killed in Treblinka, right in the Holocaust. And this master was called the the Rebbe, the teacher of children. So he says to him, did you know the Holy Master? Right? And he says, yes, I actually knew him. I was one of his children. And wow. he says, like, wow, givalt, like you were one of his children. Right? You know, who are you? How'd you get here? and this the street sweeper was a hunchback. It was It was completely bent over. And he says, "I'll tell you what happened." Right? I was one of his children, and his his services were were gorgeous. and he 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 opened up the heavens. and the way the way I got bent over is when I was in the camps, I was strong when I came, and they beat me, and they beat me so hard that i that I hunched. And so many times I would want to go to the fence that was, Electric and kill myself. But I remembered what that master, the master of Piacenza, used to say when he would gather all the children, he would say, The best Zach in the Welt. The one thing that you can always do, no matter what's happening, is to tova is to do a favor for someone. So here I was, I was bent over, right, in the camp. Right? I was, I was completely hunched back and disfigured, but because I was bent over, I could listen to anyone. And so I would walk around and I would just listen to people and they would tell me their stories and their suffering and I would listen. And that's how I survived. Like, wow. Right? And the the, the words of the Pia no matter where you are, the best to zach the world, the most beautiful thing you can do is to emetzin a is to do someone a favor. And that's always possible no matter where I am, no matter what's happening. I can always be in that car in Utah,
0: right? And, And receive someone.
1: That's unique self right there.
0: There it is. Amen. Amen. Cha. Hallelujah.
1: Hallelujah. What a joy, brother.
0: What a joy. Yeah. Been an amazing week. Amazing week. Oh my God. Thank you, everybody, for tuning into these dialogues. Many more to come. We love you. Cha. Bye bye. Thanks for tuning into this episode with Dr. Rabbi Mark Gaffney. I hope you got as much out of this conversation as I did. And please keep aware, this is a series that's going to be ongoing indefinitely as we explore all of these big questions. So keep a lookout. We have more episodes to come and also past episodes with Dr. Rabbi Mark Gaffney available on YouTube and on my podcast as well. So much love.